The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a Hollywood film producer sees a black cat cross his path? Would he do the obvious thing and make up a bedtime tale for his children? You know, that age-old tale about a cursed, tormented soul who, failing to save his sister from the icy jaws of soul-sucking hags, must now prowl the streets forever, eating rats and hoping that one day, someone, somewhere, would be enough of a goddamn virgin to think that lighting a candle made from the dripping wax of human fat to summon the reawakened corpses of hanged women could be an aphrodisiac. And would that nugget of a circuitous tale about the dangers of careless virginity one day grow into a Halloween cult film staple? Well, let's find out. Because today we are toiling over Kenny Ortega's 1993 film Hocus Pocus. So sit back and sacrifice a child as we delve into this lovable family film about mayhem, murder, and mass hysteria. Brought to you by Slurking Through Sidewalks, Mouth Moths, the whimsical side of cannibalism, and virgins. And of course, our safe word today is muggles. Anything to add, Benji? You know, this movie wants us to believe that Sarah Jessica Parker is the sexy witch, and looking back in this, come on, who are we kidding? They're all the sexy witch. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of- Space! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Hunter! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. Boo! Ha <laughs> ha! Oh. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> I totally sure. got you, London. Right? Totally, Benji. Not my name. Whatever. Happy Halloween, everybody. Assuming that you're listening to this sometime around Halloween and not, like, in July. I don't know why the hell you would want to listen to the thing about Hocus Pocus in June or July or the summertime. That's just ridiculous. Oh, going insider super quickly, huh? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, yes, today we are looking at Hocus Pocus, released in July of 1993. Apparently, initially when this movie was released, they did want to get that summer school crowd, and so... July it was, I guess. And that might be why this movie did not do so well uh, initially. N- not so much, no. I mean, it looked like it made back like its listed budget, but very often with films, there's a lot of money put into advertising and distribution, so that money was most likely lost. But Hocus Pocus, as most people who know the movie are aware of, it has a big cult following. Lots of people love it to this day. You'll see people dressing up as the characters from this a lot during Halloween. So, yeah, this is a beloved film. So, why we did this film, Benji just really wanted to do it. Also, because, as we just mentioned, people hated this movie when it came out, (laughs) including our buddy Roger Ebert. Yeah. is a big day. We have done a lot of films that we we really liked, a lot of other people don't like, but Roger Ebert did like. Uh, speaking of which, this movie, Hocus Pocus, has, I believe, 37% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not terribly good. Roger Ebert's review of it? I read this thing and I'm like, did we watch the same film, Mr. Ebert? Little bits of it are, uh, he says... 
Hocus Pocus is a film desperately in need of self-discipline. Watching the movie is like attending a party you weren't invited to and where you don't know anybody, and they're all in a joke but won't explain it to you. Of the film's many problems, the greatest may be all three witches are thoroughly unpleasant. They don't have personalities, they have behavior patterns and decibel levels. Roger! <laughs> Roger! What are you talking about, man? The witches are the best part of this movie! As you said, while you were reading that, it did seem like he was maybe describing you. <laughs> so maybe that's why you like these witches so much. Kindred spirit. <laughs> Yeah, it is weird that out of all of the films that Roger Ebert did like, though, that this would be the one that he just couldn't handle. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a fairly innocuous film, all things considered, but whatever. So we know what Roger Ebert didn't like about this movie. Benji, what is the best thing about this movie for you? Well, the cast. Our three main witches are the staying power of this film. Like I said, so many people dress up as these witches on Halloween. Rewatching this film, anytime the witches are on screen, I'm loving it. I'm loving the connection that all these characters have, the way that the performers are playing off of each other. Bette Midler was the star power behind this movie when it came out, but if you remove one of the witches from this trio, the whole thing falls apart. So that trio of witches, that's what is held for this movie for so very long. London was yeah. the best thing about this movie. Yeah, the witches. Okay, the witches but, are yeah. great. Specifically for me, Sarah Jessica Parker, actually. <laughs> I love the character of Sarah. I love her so much. She's just perfection. I don't know. And then what is the worst thing about this film for you? I have to say the worst thing about this movie, for me, when I was watching it, is the editing. Which is strange to say, because there are scenes that they're tight, they're perfect. And then there are scenes that just don't really need to happen. There are... Great sins of editing in this, like repeated shots happen every now and then. You could tighten this up a little bit, just a touch. I, I think that's like what turned people off from it a whole lot, was there are some scenes that just slow things down. Mm -hmm. What is the worst thing about this movie, London? Oh, that the witches don't win. <laughs> Spoiler alert, the witches are not going to prevail yet. There's been talk of a sequel, though, for decades, and we'll get into that at mm. the end of this cast. So the witches might still prevail, but the witches poofed out of existence way too early in this mm. film, since they were the film. It's not as fun when they yeah. go away. No one was watching this film thinking to themselves, ooh, I hope Max gets the girl. <laughs> That'll make the day for That's me. That's what we're in this for. But this is a Disney movie, so of course... The virgins stay virgins, but they defeat the witches. So things that we will be talking about, mostly the little annotations, a little bit of the production history, then some of just the little Salem tidbits and witchy tidbits that are going on throughout. So a little bit of background in terms of how this movie came to be. It came from the producer, actually, David Kirshner, saw a black cat cross his path, I guess it belonged to a neighbor, and he made up this delightful childhood tale that he told his children as a bedtime story about how this cat was actually the entrapped soul of this boy who was cursed to live eternally forever <laughs> because these witches had put this curse on him. And then he decided to turn it into a film pitch. I really feel for the children of Hollywood people because this is the kind of shit they probably hear on a day-to-day -day basis. Right? Of like Parents just practicing that tight five on all the kids. All right, so David Kirshner, yes, producer, pitched this script. 
Disney did buy it in 1984, so they had this film for about a decade before they did anything with it. It was initially slated to be called Disney's Halloween House, oh boy. which also seems kind of curious in terms of if it's the Sanderson sisters' house that was supposed to be the main focus or what, because when you think of this movie, you don't necessarily think of a specific house. So I'm wondering a little bit how different the screenplay would have been initially. And then also in the initial screenplay, everyone involved was under 12. Uh. Max and Allison's characters. So it kind of almost now seems to have like a Stranger Things vibe, right? This group of 12-year-olds that were going to have to face down this supernatural horror. But then they decided at the time in 1993 that that was a little bit too dark and that they needed to bring some teenagers in. And they also needed to bring some levity in to lighten things up. Hence... Kenny Ortega. I will get to Kenny Ortega here in just a second because I have one more production note. A Disney boy through and through. He is. But this film, another production note for it is that it is going to be filmed over the course of five months. They started filming in October of 1992 and finished in February of 1993. So a bit of a longer Mm -hmm. shoot time than most of the films that we do here, but much shorter than Sleepy Hollow. So it's kind of a balance. Very true. Most of this is going to be filmed on sound stages in California, but there are a lot of exterior shots that were filmed on location in New England and Salem and Marlboro. And so as a trademark New England. I was waiting for it. There it is. Yeah. I will be pointing out some of those shots along the way because I've spent a good deal of time in Salem, so I can tell you where those places are. This film really takes advantage of its location and getting to shoot in Salem because it's beautiful in this. It is, yeah. It's got some really cool, very important places in Salem popping up, so I will point those out throughout. And so, lightning summary. Our lightning summary. This pathetic virgin, this asshole, he lights a cursed candle an attempt to impress a girl in an attempt to not be a virgin, and he brings back soul-sucking witches from the 17th century Salem, and they have to stop the witches from killing all of the children in Salem in a quest for immortality. Yeah. Pretty much. So, you know, standard, standard plot. And the film begins... We get a Kenny Ortega film. Yeah, in such big blog letters, too. What is this guy's deal? Well, that's like the curious thing is because in 1993, he hadn't directed a lot of movies yet. He had done the Newsies. Look, that's all you need. You just need to do the Newsies and you've got big dick energy for decades. That's probably true. He will go on to direct other things for Disney, most notably the High School Musical franchise. (laughs) (laughs) So the High School Musical movies are his, all three of them. Bringing that Ortega auteur touch to the High School Musical movies. But the cool thing about Kenny Ortega and why he does things like the High School Musical movies is that he is first and foremost a choreographer. When we were talking on Sleepy Hollow about how it was interesting that initially they had picked a special effects dude to possibly direct a film, and that's kind of a weird crossover. Here we have a film and theater choreographer that was picked to direct some movies. And that's not a completely unheard of crossover, but it's a little less likely of a combination to find in Hollywood. So that's pretty cool. He has choreographed a lot of movies, including Xanadu, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Julie Newmar, Newmar, Dirty Dancing, and most of the John Hughes films randomly. 
And then he also choreographed a bunch of world tours for a bunch of musicians, such as Cher and Kiss and Michael Jackson and Madonna. So he's a big choreographer that has directed a few select movies, which include High School Musical movies and Hocus Pocus. All right. All right. Well, getting into it, after this big announcement that it's a Kenny Ortega film, we have a shadow flying over lakes and forests, and then we descend down into a little town, such a tiny village, Little Salem, the Pioneer Village. What do you want to say about this little place here? This is going to kind of production note that this village that they are flying over, this one is one of the Salem on-location shots. So they're going to use the Pioneer Village, which is a living museum in Salem that was built in the 1900s, actually, but it's a replica Pioneer Village that you can go and visit. It's open June through September, so oddly not open during October, but that's why they got to film there. The aerial shots that we're going to get are actually on Plymouth Plantation, which is about two hours south of Salem. So we're not quite in Salem for the aerial shots, but we are in the wee pioneer village for Thackeray's hometown. (laughs) Thackeray! We meet little Thackeray. Tell me about the name Thackeray. I just want to get into this immediately because it's such a weird name. Yeah, so we're going to have two kids here, Thackeray and Emily. And Thackeray and Emily live in Salem in the 1690s, and they are going to get snatched up by witches. But both Benji and I had independent reactions to the name Thackeray, especially since his sister's name is Emily, and that seems a lot more common. Mm -hmm. Thus, I, of course, had to go and look up how common Thackeray was as a name, and I found some information. Thackeray is a location-based name derived from the Old Norse for reed, combined with the word for corner of land. So put together, these two elements indicate a person who lived in a secluded or outlying part of land where thatching reeds grow. This was a popular surname in England, particularly in Yorkshire. The first records in Britain of the surname Thackeray are from 1379, so this name was in existence in the 1600s. A handful of baptisms in the 16th and 17th century do have Thackeray given as a first name, once again, most of them in Yorkshire. And then the name is going to increase in a small, small part in popularity in the 19th century, thanks to William Makepeace Thackeray. So people are going to name their kids after him, I guess. But this is still not popular, so... Even at its height and popularity in 1901, with 23 names being registered as Thackeray. Yeah, so 1693, not a popular name. Is Emily a popular name in 1693? Oh, and I will say randomly, the last registered Thackeray before Hocus Pocus came out was in 1974. Okay. So there had been no census records of Thackeray until Hocus so Pocus. Just... And then a couple of people are going to get named Thackeray again. Emily, in contrast, was the fifth most popular girl's name in 1993. And so when this movie came out, no people named Thackeray <laughs> that could be found on record. Lots of Emily's. Emily's the fifth most common name. <laughs> Although surprisingly, also in my research, I found that this wasn't necessarily the case in 1693. Emily, which comes from Amelia had been used before in literature, both in some Greco-Roman writings as well as Shakespeare's Othello in 1603. But as far as a name given fashionably, was not really very popular in the 16th and 17th century. It doesn't become really fashionable to name your child Emily until the 18th century. And then did fall out of fashion again from the 1930s to the mid-1970s. 
It hit a 20th century low point in 1962 as the 273rd most popular name, and yet that's still way more popular than Thackeray. <laughs> but the conclusion, the ultimate conclusion, and both of these kids are named super weird shit for the time period. Yeah, the names put together sound so strange, like having a movie where you have two brothers, Zacharias and DJ. Like, what? No, these names don't go together. What is, what is that? Although I do have a friend whose name is Tiberius, and he has a twin brother named Luke. And I just kind of love that, because that seems kind of like Thackeray and Emily, right? Where you're like, you have these parents that have twin boys, and they're like, we shall name this one Tiberius, and this one Luke. Fuck this one, in particular. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we have Thackeray here. Thackeray. Little Thackeray. He wakes up. There's some commotion in the barnyard. He wakes up. immediately wonders where his sister is. Yeah, I don't know why he would immediately go to, my sister is clearly out of bed and missing. Yeah. But that's where his mind goes. I don't know. He hears some singing off in the distance. Come, little children. That sort of thing. Him and his neighbor lad, there's just another guy his age who lives right next there to him. There is another dude that's just hanging out outside of this cabin. And I really want to know this guy's story because <laughs> he's just hanging out. Thackeray runs off in the direction of the singing following his sister, trips around a whole lot, and arrives at the awesome witch house. This witch house that is just spewing this magenta light into the sky. (laughs) And after color out of space, I was like, oh, we know what that color means. Is that it is this alien color that is coming down from the sky. Magenta mantis is going to show up. So yeah, magenta just has this long running history in cinema, I guess, of being this alien witchy color, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But yeah, he gets to this house looks inside chick is tied up around a cauldron these witches are here and we get our first look at the witches played by bet Midler, sarah jessica parker and kathy najimi it occurs to me like we never question the witches because winifred mary sarah we never question their names because they're witches they're just going to be named whatever the hell they want to be named regardless of time period or place this is true well i mean we don't necessarily know how old they are yeah because we know that they came back in 1993, 300 years later, to continue their quest for immortality. So maybe a virgin lit a candle last Halloween, and these broads are actually from the year 1000. Like, I don't know. I don't know their lives. I want to, though. They are administering a potion to young Emily from the evil book with the evil eye. The evil eye that's, like, controlled by remote control. It's so badass. Like, the eyeball moves around. Yeah, this book is great. So, yeah, tell me about this book. What are the effects of this book? Okay, so the book, one detail I love about this, I watched the Disney Plus, like, behind-the-scenes, like, trivia track edition of this movie, too. And they show behind-the-scenes video, and the book is so badass. Like, its spine is, like, made of human fingers that you can't really ever see too well in the movie. It's lock point. Like, imagine a big leather-bound book that has a latch on it. Instead of a latch, it has an eye that opens and closes, and the eyeball moves around, and you can see some guys behind the scenes moving joysticks around, and that's how they control the eyelid and the direction of the eyeball itself. The texture of the eyelid is so great. Proper, weird, leathery skin every time that it opens up. Everything about this book is awesome and is one of the best movie props out there. I think that this and the statue of Winifred from the end of the movie are are both on display at Planet Hollywood somewhere, I think in Orlando. Cool. Yeah, that book is great. It's a really great prop. 
Midler slash Winifred feels very, very strongly about this book as well. They're going to have a relationship. <laughs> and right now, all of these women are visibly much older than they will be for the rest of the movie. We've got some great old witch hag stage makeup going on. Very notably in the theatrical style. And so this is also Kenny Ortega's theatrical roots coming through a little bit, I think. He's not going to physically apply the effects himself. He has a makeup department. But the director generally has a very heavy hand in dictating the style and the aesthetic that the makeup department is going to do. And it does seem... Like, they went very heavy on the stage side of stuff. So we've really got that heavy, caked-on cream makeup and the age spots and whatnot. But it would usually look a little too heavy in close-ups, but because we have this very dark lighting happening in the cabin and because we're dealing in a pre-digital camera age, it still looks very... Not naturalistic, because you can definitely tell the stage makeup, but it works yeah. in a way that I wouldn't expect it to. I think, and again, just the fact that they are witches, you just accept whatever look that they give you, because like they're witches, they're supernatural, whatever, it's all good. Bette Midler's look is, uh, she says that her hair is inspired by Elizabeth I, the makeup is meant to be like, Winifred is really vain, but she has bad eyesight, so like her makeup is just a lot of white, and then those two red spots on her cheeks add some contour, but she's just not very good at it. I couldn't really find anything <laughs> on how they came to Sarah Jessica Parker's look. I do think that they kind of bleach Sarah Jessica Parker out a little bit, that her hair is very platinum, her skin is very, very pale, so everything just looks kind of ghastly. In a really hot way. Yeah, uh, Kathy and Jimmy's look. The one thing I saw that I really liked, she said that her hair, if you look at it, it's very tightly bound at the top, and then it seemed to like do a zigzag off the side, and apparently that's meant to look like a pumpkin stalk. Nice. That's cute. <laughs> yeah, there's just all these like weird little like quirky things. Yeah, I guess if you're trying to comedy something up, you know, you bring Kenny Ortega in and this trio of women who yeah. generally hedge more towards comedy. In the scene, we start to get a lot of the great comedy chemistry happening here. Catherine and Jimmy's character, Mary, is very kiss-ass and sycophantic towards Winifred, which I saw Catherine and Jimmy say that that was really easy to do because she's just a huge fangirl for Bette Midler, so she could just translate that into the character. <laughs> so like she's constantly like, oh, no, no, I'll get that, I'll get that, no, that's heavy, I'll take care of that for you, you do that, I got this, it's okay. I'm here for you, girl. Yeah. Suddenly, they know that, Z that Thackeray is there. Thackeray. I want to say Zachary because that's an actual name, but Thackeray. That's so much fun to just say Thackeray. Thackeray is there. Immediately they're like, oh, this guy is here. So he tries to stop them. But Winifred turns out she has Sith powers because she lightning bolts Thackeray around, like throws him up against the wall. And it's really just that extra little zap of lightning yeah. at the end that makes it work. Like she's just going to blast this kid with lightning bolts yeah. and he's going to shake and convulse. And then she's just going to add an extra little flick to bring him down. Yeah. And we should know, but at this point, they've already sucked the soul out of Emily. The movie kind of glosses over the fact that they just killed a little girl. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> the, the chick's dead. She's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which has got to eat, you know? Yes. They say, like, now we have to eat all the children in Salem. How many children do you think there are in Salem at this point? I'm so glad you asked, because <laughs> that was my question, where I was like, all right, all the children in Salem? Like... Is this a known set number? Are there a certain number of children required for immortality? Or is it just like every single one of them, like regardless of how many there are? So I want to try to crunch the numbers of the Salem children <laughs> population. 
It was easier to find for 1993 because in 1692-93, things get a bit hazy. So there's approximately 2,000 people in the Salem Township overall. But the Salem Witch Trials are actually going to take place in Salem Village, Mm. which was a farming area set outside of the town of Salem that actually grew to become so much its own independent thing that it is now Danvers. So it's not even called Salem anymore. But Danvers slash Salem Village had an approximate 500 to 600 people at the time in 1692. I don't know what percentage of that population were children, but about 600 people. Mm -hmm. The 1990 census, in comparison, had 38,000 people living in Salem with about 20% under the age of 18. So that's going to be approximately 7,600 kids. So when they are going to get resurrected here in the modern times and also, once again, try to go after all of the children in Salem, bare minimum, in the modern days, they're going to have to try to kill almost 8,000 of those little fuckers. (laughs) That's a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's harder, I guess, uh, in the 90s, right? It's hard out there for a witch. Yeah. Well, they've become young. They have decided, like, they state their purpose, like, we're going to eat the children or swallow their souls, Evil Dead style. Who knows? And they have Thackeray and decide, like, well, what should we do with him? And they all have different opinions. Winifred says, like, oh, I'll kill him. And uh, Mary says something like, oh, let's just hang him up and cook him. And Sarah just says, no, no, hang him outside. Let me play with him. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. (laughs) She's so great. So instead, they decide, no, the obvious thing, even though we need the souls of children to live and sustain our youth and immortality, we'd rather just waste (laughs) this morsel. Yeah. This delicate morsel, and instead turn him into a cat. They're like, oh, instead of sucking your soul out and further rejuvenating our youth, we're going to curse you with immortality as a cat. Specifically, the cat from Sabrina. Specifically, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, starring Melissa Joan Hart from the early 90s. Yes, and what we mean by that is Binksy is a mechanical cat. So actually, they're going to make this cat in a couple of ways. So they're going to use real cats. They're going to use some digital animation. And they're also going to use an animatronic puppet. And the frame for this animatronic puppet that we have here in Hocus Pocus for Binks is then going to be taken and used by the television show Sabrina for their talking animatronic black cat Salem in 1996 three years later which is pretty great this this cat really has lived on in multiple ways having now turned thackeray into a cat they laugh and cackle haha we did it they dance around but now the whole village is at their door because the other guy went and got all the villagers they're knocking the witches i love it we get a little taste of their cover story they're like no no we're just a bunch of old spinster it's just in here uh drinking tea and then sarah blurts out also sucking the souls of children out cut to the three of them about ready to be hung they want to know where the fuck thackeray is they joke about cat's got our tongue and sarah points out like um yeah this is a little uncomfortable are we about to die the book falls down winifred looks at it. it's like haha you fools one day we're gonna come back you can kill us now but oh no we're gonna return on hollow's eve when a virgin lights the candle just setting that up very important there yeah setting up our premise and it's kind of like great timing bros because these guys 
they show up right after all of the stuff goes down, right? Like the girl's dead. The kid's turned into a cat. They're too late. Yeah, but they hang them and there's already the little black cat is running around trying to get everybody's attention. I guess it doesn't know that he can talk yet. Yeah, but his father's going to, like, kick that cat, and it's going to start a series of repeat offenses against this cat, because apparently nobody in Salem likes cats, which is not true, actually. People (laughs) in Salem are obsessed with cats in the current contemporary period. Black cats have got to be, like, the town logo for Salem or something similar. They must love them. Yeah, so this is the thing about Salem, is that for a very long time, that area of Massachusetts really tried to distance itself from its own history, because... It really is kind of a horrific thing that happened there. There were, you know, several victims that got targeted and then tortured, (laughs) falsely arrested and executed. Like, it's not necessarily a fun, whimsical thing. And yet, through repeated exposure through media, it actually was Bewitched initially when Bewitched came on the air, is right around the time that you see Massachusetts kind of embracing its history a little bit more as like, oh yeah, we're like a witchy town. And it has since grown into this mass celebration of the fact that this is a magical area. It's an interesting paradox because you're like, well, if anything... You would think that it would be one of the least magical areas because <laughs> you sought to yep. eradicate and snuff out all of your magic practitioners or alleged magic practitioners at the time. But no, now they very strongly embrace their quote unquote witchy origins. And there's a lot of practicing neopagans and whatnot and lots of occult and witch shops in Salem. I love the town of Salem, mm-hmm. but it's a weird paradox to walk around there and just see that. You can go and tour, like, the torture devices, exclamation point. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's a weird combo. (laughs) We all know that witch hunting is bad now, obviously. It's it's all good, yeah. There is, like, that graphic hanging scene in this, too, where it's, like, you see them get hanged and the legs, you know, just, like, fall and suspend. And yet the costuming here is going to be so spectacular that it minimalizes it a little bit because you're, like, holy shit, this Disney movie just, like, hung three women. But, like, goddamn, those fishnets and, like, garter stockings are great. (laughs) It's hard to be freaked out by this when the first thing that pops into your mind is, like, those leggings they have are so badass. It's really cool. Yeah, it's some great costuming. Like, it really makes those legs pop. It's, like, when Fred just told us, like, we're going to come back. So you're never really convinced that they're dead. They are dead, but death is but a setback for the witches. Now in modern day, we kind of fade to modern 1993 Salem, where a high school teacher played by Kathleen Freeman, I mentioned her because she's an awesome character actor. She has like 300 creds in IMDb. She's just, you've seen her in so many things. She's awesome. But she's telling them the story. Really, the whole class is really into the tale. They're super excited. They love that she's wearing a witch's hat. But there's one student, a non-believer among this group, who's just, he's not into it, man. Goddamn skeptic. It's Max. This little tie-dye motherfucker. He's just not buying it. And he's like, no, man, it's not cool. It's a conspiracy. You know, the candy companies invented Halloween. Yeah, these Salem kids are super stoked about Halloween. Uh And Max really likes tie-dye. And the Grateful Dead. It's hard to see, but he's actually drawing a Grateful Dead poster. Yeah, this kid is super intense. And there's going to be a chick in the room that after he's like, Halloween was just invented by the candy company. She's like, actually, that's not true. It comes from All Hallows Eve, and it's a really important celebration. And all the Salem kids are just going to like cheer because they're really into Halloween. Yeah, preach it! Yeah! It's like great debate, guys. Yeah. (laughs) That was really well-structured, it was well-reasoned, it was supported on both sides. 
Max isn't going to let a little thing like being made to look like a complete jackass slow him down. So instead, he hands Allison a note and says, well, if Jimi Hendrix shows up tonight, give me a call. And I think we were both wondering, like, why would she need to give you a call if Jimi Hendrix shows up? Yeah, if Jimi Hendrix shows up, the ghost of Jimi Hendrix shows up in your living room on Halloween night. Like, you don't need this Max bitch. (laughs) You party with Jimi Hendrix, like, shit, I don't know. So, yeah, that was a little weird. Also, if we have another movie now in which Leonardo DiCaprio was offered a role and turned it down to do something that ended up being better for his career. So in Boogie Nights, Leo turned down Dirk Diggler's role for Titanic. Mm. And now in this one, he's going to turn down the role of Max to go do What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which he'll get an Oscar nomination for. So that one wasn't as high profile as Hocus Pocus, but it did give him more clout and esteem. So I guess you could kind of... Mm -hmm. Decide for yourself if that's a better career choice or not. Cause uh, yeah. Hocus Pocus is eternal in a way that Gilbert Grape doesn't seem to be, but, uh, you know, whatever. This is true. And he gives her his number. The number is interesting because it's a 555 number. Now, when I watched this on Disney+, Plus, you can just see that it's 555-9142. But apparently, as you told me, when this was played on ABC television, like broadcast television, that number had to be blurred out. Yes, Most movie watchers might notice that most of the numbers that appear in movies start with 555. That's your standard Mm -hmm. industry, quote-unquote, fake movie number prefix. And for the longest time, any number that you put 555 in front of would not be a real number. This is actually going to change at some point after 1993. As far as I know, currently 00002000. Those numbers are still not registered and thus can be used. But anything higher than 2000 are actually now assigned to people. And so this 9142 had become a private assigned number at the time that Disney was airing Hocus Pocus on ABC Family. And so that second half of the number had to be hmm. blurred out, which is kind of interesting. But apparently now put back in. So I, they, I don't know why they decided. That they bought every area code instance of that number because they're Disney. They fucking they got the cash for that. Why not? Maybe. Yeah, maybe they just bought the number and were like, fine. <laughs> well, yeah. So, Max, <laughs> the class ends. There's like, I sort of got a guy who like a 30 year old playing a high school student who just tells like Max, like, dude, you don't have a chance. Well, Max, that's not going to stop him, because after class, they head out into some gorgeous outdoor scenery of real Salem, and Max is downright stalking Allison. He says a really stupid thing. He says, I I hope I didn't embarrass you in class. And she says, no, you didn't embarrass me. The unstated thing here is like, dude, you embarrassed yourself. I mean, it was pretty suave, though, the way that he, like, swooped in was like, well, here's my number. (laughs) And you're like, okay, that's bold. That's bold for a virgin. Mm -hmm. He's going to, like, progressively lose his game uh, throughout. Yeah. But, like, that was, like, his one shining moment of, like, oh, maybe you've guessed some game. Who knows? <laughs> they are going to be delivering this exchange in the Salem Common, or the Common, mm-hmm. as it's called. So, fun fact that it is here on the Salem Common that they actually screen a yearly showing of Hocus Pocus during October, right here where this scene takes place. I'll give it to you. That fact was kind of fun. So yeah. after the conversation, he rides his bike through a cemetery. Kind of a dick move, like right around the cemetery, dude. Come on, what are you doing? I mean, Max is kind of a dick. Yeah. He, he really is, <laughs> but it's fine. This cemetery that he's going to ride through is actually not in Salem. So this is another on location in Massachusetts, but it's going to be in Marblehead, mm. which is outside or a neighboring area. And why they had to move over that way is that the actual Salem Cemetery 
is very, very small. It's the second oldest cemetery in America, I believe, but it's also just tiny, and the headstones are tiny and frail looking. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to be a good cinematic shot. So they move over to Marblehead for the day shots, although the majority of cemetery scenes are going to be shot in the studio. When we get to them, I will explain why. Okay. But the bullies are here, and that's important. <laughs> the bullies who ask Max, like, you're new. Where are you from? Los Angeles. What? Um, L.A. Oh, okay. One is Joe, and another guy is named Ernie. And Ernie just says, dude, I told you. Call me Ice from now on. Turns around, and he's got yeah. ice shaved into the back of his head. Showing us the true staying power of vanilla ice on the youth of America at the time. You know. Yeah. These these guys are great. Oh, these guys, are the, they're the best of friends. Uh, you know, they steal Max's shoes because, you know, they're bullies. Max gets home, drives up to uh, his new home in Salem. And this is where you really feel bad for him because he lives in this horrible house. God, this house is so great. So this house is located at 4 Ocean Avenue in Salem, Massachusetts. It's another exterior shot. It's a real place. It's weird that we actually don't use it in the film because it has an amazing view of Salem Harbor. We're really only in the film going to get it from the harbor side looking towards the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So we don't get the sense that this is right on the water. But if you were to actually go to the other side of the house and look out the other way off to like the right then the water is just there. And why you can kind of tell that this house architecturally is built to be on the water is that it has that really beautiful quasi-lighthouse-looking thing going yeah. on at the top of it, that little nook. And that's really common for waterside properties. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's built like a waterside house because it is a waterside house. Okay. I'm not really sure why they didn't use the water yeah. in the shot because it would have been beautiful. Very sad. Well, Max, he stomps on into his house. Uh, his parents see him. The mother says, like, uh, he doesn't have any shoes on. The dad says, oh, it must be some sort of protest. Like, you know, this dad, he's got his pulse on what the youth are thinking. Stud's so great. Yeah, Max is, like, screaming out stuff. I can't believe you made me move here. Goes into his room, gets on his bed in a huff, and he suddenly starts hugging his pillow. He's like, oh, Allison, you're so soft. You're so wonderful. I want to kiss you. And then suddenly, boom, closet doors pop open and it's his little sister. And thank God she came out of that closet when she did because he was about to do something. He's like, he's an uber virgin. He just, he only understands that women can be soft. Yeah. That they're like pillows, I guess. I don't know. His sister, Danny, played by very young Thor Birch. Birch. Yes. Sorry, I was blanking on that. But she is like psyched because it's time to go trick-or-treating. And Max, he doesn't want to do it. Danny demands, like, no, you have to take me trick-or-treating. I'm going to get lost if you don't help me out. He refuses, and she just screams out, Mom! What's interesting is there's a deleted scene here that's meant to take place between her screaming and the two of them getting ready to go because Max has no choice, where Max's dad talks to him, and we actually get better shots of the harbor area, and, like, we see more of the water that we don't see in the rest of the oh, movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And he says, uh, well, Max, you know, if you're not going to help your sister out, it... Might be difficult for you to try and get that driver's permit next year. And so he's basically telling him, like, if you don't help your sister out, you're not going to get to learn how to drive. And this is interesting because in Massachusetts, uh, Massachusetts, the state that's... Trademark New England. Trademark New England, <laughs> but especially this state, the age for driver permits is 15 years and nine months. So the movie's kind of telling us Max, he may not even be 15 and a half yet. 
I thought that maybe this kid's like a senior in high school, maybe he's 17, 18. No, Max is maybe 15 years old right now. So just keep that in mind later on when people give this kid crap for being a virgin. Like, what the fuck, everyone? Come on. Yeah, let the kid be 15 and get his little driver's permit. Good Lord. (laughs) But yeah, no, that's interesting that that would be deleted because that does seem like it would be good contextual information to know that he is of still driver's permit age or precipice of driver's permit age and that he's been veritably like extorted to Mm -hmm. go trick-or-treating with his sister. Also, 15 fucking years, whatever. So Max has agreed, okay, fine, I'm going to take her out trick-or-treating. He's not happy about it. The bullies we met before are out there tossing pumpkins around, which I just thought, isn't that what you're supposed to do with the pumpkins on Halloween is smash them? And I mean... No, you're supposed to enjoy them. I don't know. It just didn't seem that terroristic to me, but I don't know. An important trivia aside about trick-or-treating... Yes, please. ...is that it didn't actually become popular in the U.S. until the 1930s. I found that because it is based off of an old European practice of mumming or souling and dressing up and kind of going around. And this remained, souling remained a practice in the UK pretty much all the way through from the medieval period, but it didn't really pick up in the US until the 1930s. Mm. But these kids are going to be running around in costumes, but I randomly found this fact that isn't exactly specific to this movie, but I thought it was important that in 2018... There was an estimated spending of $480 million on Halloween costumes for pets. Hmm. $480 million <laughs> was spent on Halloween costumes for pets. 1993 probably didn't have as much of a pet costume budget yet, but the most popular costumes for pets are the pumpkin, and then the hot dog, and then the bumblebee comes Aww. into third place. Well. There is, like, the dog, right? Okay. That... The woman has, is he dressed up in a costume that chases the Sanderson sisters out later? Oh, no, the dog is dressed up. He's like got a little devil costume on uh, later on. the Or just devil wings, something. He has something on. I forget yeah. what. But. So he, he's part of this grand tradition of yeah. pet spending for costumes. Makes sense. But yeah, I was just like, 480, holy shit. <laughs> Had some cash right there. My God. Danny is basically just trying to sacrifice her brother to these bullies because she keeps telling him, like, my older brother, he's going to kick your butt. He's not going to take any of this from you. And Max has to come up and is like, Danny, come on, don't do not do this. And he eventually just gives the bullies his candy to, so they can get out of there. And Danny is chastising him, like, why didn't you fight them? Well, they would have killed me. Well, then you could have died like a man. Like, God. Yeah, and you're like, whoa. Jesus, way Danny. To his, like, meager masculinity there, Danny. Yeah, Max is just, he's fed up, frustrated. He yells at Danny. She falls down next to some pumpkins, starts crying. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm stressed out. We got this new, new place. We just moved here. I'm a little worked up. And they kind of have a tender moment. They make up. And they stand up to see, like, wait, where do we, where are we right now? And they see this gigantic house so this house yeah they do london so this house yes this is a quintessential georgian colonial and it is the ropes mansion in salem so the exterior once again the interior shots are not going to be used but those are going to be on a soundstage but the exterior is something called the ropes mansion it is located at 318 essex street And it was built in the 1720s, owned by this guy that was sort of a shipping and sea merchant, and then later sold to a dude named Nathaniel Ropes, who's a big attorney or judge kind of dude in Salem. 
He bought this house in 1768, and his family is going to own it until 1907. So you want to talk about lineage of sort of privilege and family property ownership. They're going to own this house for about 200 years and then turn it over to the Peabody Essex Museum. And so this is a house that you can still tour and it's got some gardens and stuff, but it's been renovated a little bit. Actually, in the 1890s, the house was actually taken in it full and moved back wow. a bit from the street. <laughs> so that's why it's set back from the street, is right, that huh? at some point the house was physically moved. But this is going to be the house in the film of Allison. So he was just weeping in the pumpkins. Well, I guess technically Danny was Danny weeping was in the pumpkins, weep. but he also was like engaging in this weep fest on the porch of his. Yeah crush and they they're like whoa a rich person house let's head in there and get i don't know something so they head in they meet allison who she is like on candy duty not really doing a very good job of being on candy duty because no one was at the door they just walk into the house which it's been a long time since i've trick-or-treated maybe things have changed but i don't recall it being cool to just walk into a house actually oh so... oh please actually me yeah well so, actually so, so, ben. trademark new england stuff here oh. now that there were houses in my neighborhood growing up that the families would get together and there would be signs on some doors that would just be pointing to like one specific house and the cul-de-sac would have gotten together to just do like a mega Halloween thing where they'd be screening stuff on the garage and they'd be cooking hot dogs and cider and you could just like walk right into the garage or sometimes walk actually into the main entry reception part of the house so this was not completely okay i'll i'll revise my statement they walk into the house as you do in trademark new england yeah there we go there we go I mean, it is still weird yeah. that you just walk it, but like this actually is sometimes done or yeah. was done in the 90s. Allison's family apparently is doing a colonial America costume party. And so she's dressed in like kind of a big dress, the corsets. And Danny says, wow, I really like your dress, Allison. I can't wear it, though, because I don't have. What do you call it, Max? Yabos? Max loves your Yabos. I think what she's going for here is she just really wants to like sink that ship of her brother's <laughs> like she really just wants to get in the line so i saw my brother hump a pillow yeah. pretending it was you and i just really want to salt and burn this game like right here right now because she's like a wee little diablo and it's kind of fun just can't win but they begin chatting about the history of the town and the witches allison points out like oh yeah my mother used to run the museum of the dedicated to the witches max says oh why don't we go there that would be cool he's clearly trying to impress allison and Danny's like, Max, no, we don't want to go to the witch house. Like, do something normal people will do. Like, take her to a movie or show her a video of a trash bag floating in the wind. That would work for me. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> bitch, why do we have to go to this dilapidated museum house? I want candy. And <laughs> Max is like, I really want to get laid, though, because here's the thing. Like, I never have. Yeah. And that's super important. I'm 15 years old, and I'm a virgin. The world is against me, man. It's like just me and a pillow. And my little sister in a closet. God, stop it. This image is in my head now. Fuck. Oh, that's messed up. Well, anyway, they arrive at the house, and it's the same house that we saw at the beginning of the movie, and apparently has just been turned into a museum more or less unchanged. And a lot of cobwebs in this house. Is this a museum choice? Why are there so many cobwebs around here? Yeah, because it does seem like the Sanderson sisters' house has been turned into an active museum. It has pamphlets. It has 
little lighters for sale. There's a lot of just velvet roped off sections. So this is an active 20th century space. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just covered in these really thick cobwebs that do kind of look like the type of really overblown cobwebs that you get in Halloween stores. So part of me is just wondering if this is a museum aesthetic choice, like diegetically, if the museum put these cobwebs here as like a look. Yeah. Allison did mention that the place had been closed down because too many spooky things were happening there, but I don't get the sense that this happened so long ago that these cobwebs would begin to form. So I think that, yeah, maybe that's just a choice that whoever decorated the museum went for that, like, yeah, put some cobwebs up here. And also a black cat is watching them. Just want to point that out. Like, there's a black cat watching them through a window. That's Yeah, he's just hanging out. He's hanging out. So there is an actual, quote-unquote, witch house in Salem. It is not going to be this one, Aww. but there is sort of a touring museum that you can go to. Although... In contrast to being owned by witches or alleged witches, it's actually going to be the house of Jonathan Corwin, who was one of the judges during the Salem Witch Trials. So it's on the other side. Yeah. With, of course, like all this folklore that it's haunted, you know, by the spirits and people he condemned and whatnot. Fair but enough. it's located pretty much in the heart of Salem. So it's not set outside right, yeah. in the way that the Sanderson sisters are. But the address is kind of weird and quirky for the witch house because it is at. 310 and a half Essex Street. So if and you want to add something to it. Yep. How, 310 and a half. How do you I don't know. How do you have a half? I don't know. How is there a fraction in your street address? I, I don't know. And like I mean it's an actual full house, so it's not even like it's a half building, so I don't, That's I don't know. yeah, really weird. They look around, they see that the book given to Winifred by the devil. It's under the the book we saw from the beginning of the movie. It's now under a glass case. And also the black flame candle made out of human fat. Can you make a candle out of human fat, London? Oh, once again, I'm so glad you uh, asked. I'm you not, can, I'm not, actually. Glad, you though. can make a candle out of human fat. <laughs> you can also make soap. Fight Club is also right about that. <laughs> but, yeah, so what it seems to be referencing here is, or most closely referencing here, is a practice called the Hand of Glory. And the Hand of Glory is a really fun folk practice which actually involves more body parts than just the fat. So in order to create a hand of glory, you need the hand of a hanged man. Huh. Preferably for either thievery or murder. And you're going to chop that hand off after he's been hanged. And you're going to dry it out. You're going to pickle it. If it is the hand of a murderer, then you want the hand that did the deed. But if you don't know what hand that is, you just go with the left one because the left is the associated sinister side. Then you also gather some of the fat and you make a candle out of that dude. And if you light this human fat dripping candle while it's being held by this pickled hand, then there are a lot of folk beliefs, old European folk beliefs that are attributed to the great powers that this hand will provide you. Some of those are that once lit, the people that are beholding it will be rendered motionless and they won't be able to move against you. There's also ideas that can only be put out with milk, strangely enough. There are other ideas that will only give light to its beholder. So this can be a good little like thieves tool where you're carrying your little candle that only gives you light. There will be a Hand of Glory referenced in Harry Potter, actually, when Harry's in Diagon Alley, there's a a reference to one. So this does kind of pop up in places. Mm -hmm. But we do get 
writings on how to make these hands of glory in the Petit Albert. It's a grimoire from the 1700s. And then we also get it referenced in the Compendium Malficarium, which is one of the witch hunters manuals from the early 1600s. So this is something that kind of pops up throughout European folklore throughout the centuries. So this was contemporary to the Sanderson sisters time is this idea of witchy, uh, grimoire-based human fat candles. But they really should have thrown that, you know, like, amputated hand in there, too, (laughs) for that little something extra. It's it's what this was missing. Uh, Yes, but Allison does explain if a virgin lights it on Halloween, then the witches are going to come back. And Max, you know, he wants to show off what a badass non-believer he is. He has a Zippo letter he's trying way too hard to look cool with, and it's like, well, let's light it up and meet the old broads. And a cat attacks him, trying to stop him. And they're all like, okay, dude, there's the cat's attacking us. Let's get out of here. And Max, he's not deterred and just declares, oh, come on. It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Hey, that's the name of the show. <laughs> there we go. That's from Arrested Development. <laughs> Made a huge mistake. But, and he lights it, and oops-a-daisy. Black flame candle goes. Everything starts shaking in the room, and our witches are back. What you gonna do? Yeah, because virgins. Fucking. I was gonna say, like, throughout most of this, like, my takeaway was, like, so virginity equals bad. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Disney. Yeah. After the house shakes, Max is like, what happened? And Danny puts her hat back on, is, is in a huff. She's like, a virgin lit the candle. Like, sorry? The house it begins to erupt with green light. Candles that were previously unlit are now lit. Looks like they kind of reversed uh, some footage of candles being blown out and just uh, played that back. And so, like, candles are just lighting up on their own. It's spooky. Yeah, it's a cool shot. Yes. The sisters have arrived, and they're happy as can be. Winifred's waking the book up, and the book's eye opens, and it looks around. I just, I never get enough of that effect. Just absolutely love it. But Mary smells a little girl. They sneak around. They grab Danny. Danny tries to play it off like she's the one that conjured them. Like, oh, hello, sisters. I am so glad you answered my call. It's Thora Birch doing a, a pretty, I don't know, I guess 10-year-old Thora, Thora Birch. She does an okay British accent for a 10-year-old. What are you going to do? But the witches, they know better. Uh, Mary begins, like, looking at her like, oh, she's plump. A little shishka baby. Which, okay, a witch from 1693 knows what a shishka bob is. Like, good on her, you know? She, Mary was ahead of things. Yeah. Because they have been around for millennia. It's all cycles. And they know all. Yeah, you don't know for sure that time is linear. Like Cooking is a cyclical style of... Uh... Yeah, well, anyway, the witches... Winifred says, like, what year is it? It's 1993. Whoa, we've been away for 300 years. Uh, they're starting to laugh. Danny's trying to laugh with them. But eventually, like, no, let's go ahead and eat you. Max pops up to stop them. But, uh-oh, Winifred, she's still got those Sith powers. Hasn't lost her touch at all. There's a bit of a fight. Allison joins in. They knock the witches around with frying pans and bags of candy. And Max hops up and gets a zippo letter back out and says, Behold, the burning rain of death. And I love the, the bit that the witches, like, they hear him say that. And they're like, the burning rain of death. The burning rain. Do we know that? Burning rain of death. Burning rain of yeah. death. He makes fire in his hand. He lights a fire alarm, you know, the little sprinkler. And it's kind of a dick move because you've just ruined a lot of historical artifacts in that place uh, for, you know, a diversionary tactic. So, again, fuck you, Max. They head out. They run off. The sisters pursue. And they discover what pavement is. 
as soon as they land, they get onto the pavement, they begin to walk, and they begin to do the walk that I absolutely love so much, uh, which I discovered in the behind the scenes. They called this slurking. Um, the three of them began walking. They're both like kind of in unison, like left, right, left, right. Uh, but they're like, rah, 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 making this rah sound. They called this slurking because they dis- decided it was a combination of slithering and lurking. So every time they did this behind the scenes, they're like, okay, re- let's get ready to slurk, which, yeah, nice. Yeah, it's a fun little term. There is a fun little like folklore tidbit about this river pavement. Oh, so okay. they come up to the pavement and there's this idea in a lot of folklore that witches can't cross water. And so the fact that Winifred just pushes her sister into what she thinks might be a rushing river is a pretty dick move, actually. <laughs> She's like, sure, let's see if it kills you, and then we'll, we'll continue on. Uh, we're now following the kids, and they've gone to a cemetery. Back at the house, the sisters watch the firemen go. They think that they're witch hunters. It's kind of funny. Winifred explains that the magic that brought them back is only going to last one night, and unless they eat some child souls before the sun rises, they will evaporate and die. Meanwhile, Sarah Jessica Parker has eaten a spider, which apparently she really ate a spider uh, for the sake of this scene. Which Yeah, I saw that too, that in interviews that she mentioned she had actually eaten a spider on set here. I don't know what kind of spider, and I don't know why they would have had her eat a physical spider like that, because it was a really big spider. So yeah. I don't, I don't get that exactly. There's a dark side to Sarah Jessica Parker. I'm learning that I, I'm intrigued by, and I want to know more. Back at the cemetery, Binks is explaining how he's been alive for 300 years, trying to keep people away from the house on Halloween, All Hallows Eve. Because he's just worried that one day some airhead virgin is going to light the candle. Max being that airhead virgin, that 15-year-old virgin. Man, 15 years old. That just, that seems old to never have done the thing that makes you not a virgin. Um, any, what is a virgin anyway? <laughs> so... Yeah, the, the virgin stats. This is another, it's like, okay, now I have to, like Thackeray, right? I have to deep dive into the virgin statistics. So once again, my Google search history. Again, it's she's on the list. She is it's on every list now. So first off, it should be said that like virginity is a complicated and kind of bullshit concept, yeah. right? So there's that. So there are plenty of people that define sex in different ways that are no longer virgins, even if they have never had, as the 21st century term has become, P and V sex. I, that okay. term just bugs me, uh, but it's a term. We'll use it. Yeah. Yes. If, if we're really talking some brass knuckles, P and V sex, penis and vagina sex for people who also Why do you bring brass knuckles not, into this? What? Why do you bring brass knuckles into it? My God. I always bring brass knuckles into sex. So, <laughs> yeah, the rundown on PNV sex. So, according to the CDC, the average age at which American women first have PNV sex is around 17.3 years. For men, it's 17. So, uh, so that is average. So, yeah. that does mean that there are people above and below that stat, but around 17. According to the same CDC studies, 70.7% of 15 to 19-year-old males have had sex. So he's now entering the range, I guess, where 70% mm-hmm. of people, right, from about 15 to 19. But he's just reaching those. 
But another thing that I did find kind of interesting is that these, of course, are contemporary statistics. So 2020 is going to be different than 1993. Yeah. Those stats were a little bit harder to find, but for like the exact numbers, but the stats that I was able to find is that virgins are actually more common in 2020 at later ages than they were in the 1990s and before. So, Well, there's a lot of pressure because of movies like this. (laughs) Yeah, studies have shown that millennials and Gen Zers are virgins a lot longer than boomers and Gen Xers. And so a study that came out in 2016 found that just 44% of teenage girls had lost their virginities compared to 58% from 25 years ago. And with boys, it was 47% had had sex as teens compared to 69% um, in their parents' generation, which was surprising to me. I would have thought that there had been a higher statistical likelihood that he would be a virgin, but it does seem in the 90s. A lot of 15 to 19 year olds were, were having some sex. They were absolutely right to criticize this kid. Either way, like he didn't have to light that goddamn candle, but no. he did. Yeah. So it was less about him being a virgin and more about him being a skeptic, really. That he's like, this this isn't going to do anything. That, maybe it's that's fine. the true lesson of this movie is that, like, you know, virgins are one thing, but skeptics, oh, that's even Skeptical worse. Skeptical virgins are the worst. Oh, <laughs> I no wonder that's you're a virgin. That's the takeaway. Careless virginity, careless skeptical virginity. So yeah. go out and have a bunch of sex and start praying to those demons. <laughs> that's, that's what Hocus Pocus has taught me. Ah, uh, well, Max, now that he has been, you know, declared the airhead virgin, decides like he's got to do something about it. Grabs the book and he's like, "Let's let's burn this sucker." Tries to burn the book, but the book is fireproof. Like wind comes off it, it's protected, so he can't do that. And there's no time to even talk about it because the the witches are here now and they're flying. They are flying. Yeah. So let's talk about this flying, please. Yeah. Okay. So the flying in this is really, really very cool. They obtain this aesthetic effect in two ways. So they're gonna do some physical flying on set through rigging and they're going to get terry frizzies to do it so the frizzies are a long-standing family in hollywood that do rigging in films so terry's father was a big pioneer in flight rigging for cinema and then he handed the company over to terry and then he had sons that were working on hocus pocus that he was hoping to hand the company off to one day family affair okay this is hollywood flight rigging royalty right here they developed a lot of really cool machines in the industry to allow things to kind of levitate and fly the one that they're going to use in this is a crane dolly that they call the teeter rig Mm -hmm. this is also why when i mentioned that all of the main cemetery shots are going to be done on sound stages in California. Most of it was because a lot of these cemetery shots also involved the flying. And in order to set up this flying, you need to be on a sound stage because they ran so much just heavy piping across the ceilings, across the floor to really stabilize what are going to be the wires. And they have all of our three witch ladies in these harnesses. But then there's the teeter rig. It basically looks like a seesaw, almost like a crane seesaw mm. that are on dollies that can move around the soundstage. And when 
somebody kind of goes to the other end of this teeter rig and pushes down the other end where the actor is, is going to get pushed up. And so that was to add extra support and extra safety. So for the most part, they are in these harness rigs suspended in the air, but their feet are also kind of on these platforms a little bit. That's why we get the medium to close-up shots of our witches flying. And so when they're people, right, we get these kind of medium to above. The full-bodied long shots of the flight are actually going to be done with puppets. Hmm. And not just any puppets, but Rick Lazzarini puppets. Once again, we're getting into the effects world. I'm like, this this is my world. Tell me, who is Rick Lazzarini? So Rick Lazzarini and co, he ran this particular puppetry studio that specialized in puppetry. It's not just Rick that's working on it. He has like a whole studio of little puppet makers. It's actually incredible how many people it took to make these puppets. (laughs) But they first sculpt them out of clay. These are not to scale puppets. These puppets were about the size of like an American Girl doll. So we're doing these miniature puppets. And they make them as close to the physical attributes of the actors as possible. So you get all of these pictures or right, you put them up and you're really studying. That can be really tricky because when you're making effects dummies, what you have to do first when you're building up a human model that's based off of the actors, you've got to think, what would this person look like when stripped of their hair and when stripped of, you know, like their makeup? So like, because you're doing the base face first. Yeah. And people look very different, right? Or without eyebrows first. And so it's this, yeah, slow buildup. But yeah, they would make these little dudes. Then you get what's called rod puppetry, Mm -hmm. where you attach a little rod to these little dudes, usually by like the neck. And so you've got the puppeteer just manipulating through this one rod. They got some shots while they were still in clay form. But then after you get those... You put the clay into a little mold and make a mold or a cast mold out of the clay puppet. And then you fill that mold with foam latex. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with these little latex foam puppets and then you dress them and you put them back on those rods. And so the shots that we're going to get of them flying over the cemetery, also the shot later where they burst out of that house on Four Ocean Avenue out into the night sky. And we get the shot from the perspective of the sort of first floor of the house looking up at the sky and the witches flying away. Those are going to be puppets, as well as there's a shot, I think, at one point where Sarah is flying along the side of a car or it's kind of down the road and we get the behind shot of Mm. that. And that is also going to be puppets. So pretty much any time you see the full body shot of these witches flying through the sky, they are rod puppets. And it's really cool to think of like kind of just the mechanical ways of trying to move those bodies naturalistically, the type of materials you need to put on those puppets so it flows. Like they were blowing the wind and stuff. Like there's some footage still available out there. I think you can kind of probably find it on YouTube if you look up like Hocus Pocus puppets or behind the scenes. They did grab some of the footage of these guys going to the studio to film with these puppets in front of a blue screen and all of the wind that's blowing and whatnot and the manipulations and then going in and having to try to add, you know, a a backdrop of Salem or the night sky behind Mm -hmm. them so that they could fly. But (laughs) a lot of work went into making these women fly in 1993. It's a badass effect and it really works. I I know that Sarah Jessica Parker has said that, like, she found it really comfortable and, like, would just stay in the flying rig for a little while when not needed on camera. So, 
Good on them. But yes, the witches have now arrived. Winifred mocks Max and says, Ha ha ha, it's all just a bunch of hocus pocus. Hey, that's the name of the show. <laughs> yeah, it is Arrested Development. Thank you. Ta- taunts the cat and then raises her former lover, Billy the Butcher. And a zombie rises out of the grave. And that zombie is played by motherfucking Doug Jones. And you were really happy about this. <laughs> Doug Jones is the man with a boring name and the least boring career ever. The guy has like been in so many different like special effects suits over the years. It's mind-boggling. Yes, tell us about Doug Jones. Well, he's so versatile and does so many crazy things. And this is a very early role for him. Like, he has been in so many films over the years. A lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies. If you've wanted to fuck that sexy fish guy from Shape of Water... (laughs) And who hasn't? Yeah, You want to fuck Doug Jones. That is who he is. He does, like, a lot of motion capture. He was, like, the Silver Surfer in that Fantastic Four movie that no one really cared for. Which is really all the Fantastic Four movies, if we're being (laughs) real, but... As you say, which one? (laughs) Yeah, no one likes those movies. What are you going to do? His only like film credits prior to this movie was a thin clown in Batman Returns, and I think his like his first movie was in a trauma film of all things. Yeah, which one? Um, I forget, but the fact that you're excited about that tells me you haven't actually watched all that many trauma films because they are terrible. Yeah, no, I have worked on many trauma films, actually. That is why I'm excited because (laughs) yeah, they are terrible, but they're so much fun to do effects on because. I do remember one of the first trauma films I worked on and I got there. And one of the things you do in production meetings is to like ask, okay, how much blood are you going to (laughs) need? And I remember at this production meeting, they just looked at me and they were like, vats and vats and vats of blood. And I was like, all right, shit, let's do it. So yeah, I've never made more blood for a shoot than I have on trauma films. There you go. Yes, it's fun to work on, not so much fun to watch. If no one believes me, try Marathon, the class of Newcomb High movies, and get back to me. And We should do Tromeo and Juliet. That one I did not work on. But <laughs> well, no. I mean, that one's my favorite. Um, the trauma movie in question that Doug Jones did, since you asked, is called The Newly Deads from 1988. It says, the owner of a lakeside resort murders a transvestite. 15 years later, the spirit comes back and starts killing honeymoon couples. I have a feeling this movie didn't age well. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like it did. I didn't work on that one either. No, well, you said was it was in what year? 1988. Yeah, no. I know you're a vampire, but... Oh, you're jumping on that train now, too? Why, why not? Kind of. That's funny to me. But yeah, if you ever want an interesting read, like, just look through Doug Jones's IMDb page. That He's just been in so many crazy things. And the producers like got him on this movie after they saw him in a... McDonald's commercial for like the Mac Tonight commercials. If you ever saw those, this is like when McDonald's was like advertising the fact that it was going to be open past 6 p.m., which in the early 90s people were like, whoa, McDonald's <laughs> is open past 6 p.m.? That's amazing. Yeah. In those commercials, he, the character he was playing was like called Mac Tonight, who was a guy with a crescent moon head playing the piano. And the producers saw this and realized, like, oh, wow, so there's a lot of lighting and a lot of special effects happening in this commercial. So the guy in that outfit had to sit on that piano for hours on end with that giant moon face on his head and still be animated while he's doing this, like, dance number. We need that guy. 
And so that commercial got Doug Jones this job as Billy the Butcher, the Billy zombie. And if you watch it, he is like so animated and like expressing so much through the makeup, which is a really difficult thing to do. There's not many people out there who have like the kind of face that can like push through Mm -hmm. all the prosthetics they put on to create the effect. So... Yeah. yeah, especially 90s prosthetics. So 80s and 90s prosthetics went through a period where it was just so thick and so heavy. There's just so much latex involved just because the materials really hadn't advanced that much yet. So a lot of people that are used in horror films or monster movies that get this stuff put on them, one, they have to be great face actors, but two, they're often yeah have some sort of background of physicality, like stuntmen and whatnot, that can actually physically retain the weight of a lot of the prosthetics that are put on them. So, mm. yeah, Doug Jones, nicely done, man. He, nicely done. He's one of them, yeah. So the kids, now seeing that a zombie is after them, the kids run off. The witches leave the cemetery. They go outside, have a have a calming circle, which is... You know, a calming circle. It's nice. A bus arrives, uh, and a bus driver who is trying way too hard. In a way that, like, almost swings back around again. <laughs> I, know, I mean, I know that you're attracted to this guy. I just don't see normal people being attracted to this guy. Yeah, I see most normal people probably want to punch this dude in the face. <laughs> I find him to be super fun. I was like, I would ride on a bus with you. He's smacking a gum when he arrives. They're like, what is this contraption? I call it. He like spits out of his gum, but I swear like the Foley department added in like some sort of like effect. It sounds like a stone or a pebble is hitting the ground. So you think this guy just spit out a tooth. Yeah, it's effective. And he's like, this is a bus. It conveys you to your most intimate desires. Wow. Okay. So the witches hop on the bus to go into town. There's a deleted bit here where he says, uh, yeah, also I need some bus tokens. And Winnie grabs Sarah and pushes her towards the bus driver. And Sarah says something along the lines of, like, well, perhaps instead of a bus token, you'll take a token of my affection. So I guess they deleted this to kind of ease out the fact that Winnie is trying to make Sarah sell her body to this bus driver in exchange <laughs> for a ride. Not, not a very Disney yeah. moment, but it does explain why later on she's sitting on his lap as he's driving the bus. That doesn't seem very safe, but this guy is... Just desperate for any female contact, I think. Yeah, it also doesn't seem that out of character for Sarah. No, it no, no. It made perfect sense that they just cut to Sarah just being on this dude's lap because she likes to play, you know? Yeah. The kids have made their way through the sewers and are climbing up a manhole, get out in the street, and suddenly, out of fucking nowhere, the cat is run over. Binks the cat is run over by the bus. This is really fucking graphic because they have the cat and it's just squished in the middle. They begin weeping. They're like, oh, God, Binks, no, no, oh, God. The music gets really sad, and they're all crying. And then the comically, the cat just reinflates. He gets back up like, ah, hate it when that happens. I can't die, remember? Whatever, man. That's nothing. Yeah, I guess it's really establishing this cat's immortality, so it's a plot point moment. But it's like, goddamn, Disney. Like, <laughs> Disney really likes to just, like, slaughter lovable creatures <laughs> yeah cr- lovable creatures uh parents it's a, it's a slaughter all right yes. so yeah after the cat gets the cat is killed flattened. off but not killed off the uh, mary stops the bus because she smells children and they get off to see a bunch of kids running around in costumes there's a hilarious moment where there's a kid in an angel costume looks at them and just 
curtsies and says, bless you. And the witches all freak the fuck out. Like, ah, nice. They hiss. They recoil back. It's amazing. Yeah, I love that. Like, that's kind of the tone that this movie is playing with in terms of the behind the scenes supernatural elements the witches deal with. To them, what looks like an angel is a real angel as is the guy in a devil costume to them. They're like, oh, that's the real devil over there. Gary Marshall in that uh, devil outfit, which is just a red leotard and like the red horns. He looks like a cartoon devil, but to them like, oh, that's Satan over there. Yeah, they see him and they're like, master. <laughs> and it was it's funny because hot. this guy uh, played by Gary Marshall, he's like, oh, look at you. The sisters haven't seen you in a few centuries. It's kind of playing along with what he thinks are just awesome costumes. And they totally believe everything he's saying. They're like, master, we're so glad to see you. And he invites them in again, as you do. You just as, as we've learned in trademark New England, people just mm-hmm. go right into those houses. That's how the trick or treating is done. It's just Yeah, well this one's not a party. This is just like a dude with his wife on the couch that's invited three random women into the house. So this is I mean, I'm sure this also happens in trademark New England, but <laughs> it's not because of Halloween. This is just uh, another thing entirely. This is a dude who's like, these women are calling me master, maybe I should invite him in. Indeed. Yep. Which is a fair conclusion, you know? Fair enough, yeah. This whole section with the witches inside this guy's house, I like it, but it could be trimmed down a little bit more. There are, like, wonderful moments where the guy in the devil outfit says, like, uh, I'm going to introduce you to the little woman. And Winifred just goes, he has a little woman. And, like, mimes, like, holding a little woman. I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's that's beautiful. Oddly, this guy's wife is played by Penny Marshall. And Gary and Penny Marshall are brother and sister here playing husband and wife. It's like, okay, interesting choice, but they have their shtick down. They're having fun with it. And it's not terribly exciting. The lighting in this whole sequence is not very dynamic. It's very plain. So it's like, eh, we could tighten this up a little bit. That's uh, that's just my hot take. No, that's fair. There is like a certain interest, I guess, in like the mundane space that like these women are thinking that this is some version of hell and I guess like in a way, in a tongue-in-cheek way, probably unintentional, possibly middle-class suburban living in a no longer scintillating marriage might be some variation of a hell, so... The real hell is marriage. The real hell is middle America. It's what this Disney movie is telling us. Meanwhile, there's these three sexy witches that are trying to initiate a devil's three-way which is where I guess you have three women and the devil. And the devil, yeah. I th- I think one of them, like at some point, Winnie says, uh, "But master, what about the book?" And I think she's trying to get maybe because they've lost the book at this point because the kids have stolen mm-hmm. it. So I think she's trying to see if she can get another, you know, book of the damned from Satan. And he's like, "I eh, will talk about the book later on." And that's when Sarah wants to dance with him. It's a very odd social dynamic all around, though, because. <laughs> I mean, I get where the witches are coming from, right? Because they think this dude is Satan and they're working it because one of them wants a new book. The other one just wants to do the devil. Like, this all makes sense. 
And yet it seems like kind of a dick thing to do for this guy to just like invite these three strange women into his house in front of his wife that's trying to get ready for bed. And he's like, but these women call me master and they want to have a three way. (laughs) This woman is just like, I'm clearly not into this right now, bro. Because like, I mean, I'm willing to extend that maybe this is part of their dynamic that they pick strangers up and like they have group sex and like that's all fine and good. But clearly his wife is not feeling it right now. So it just becomes a little weird that he's in the living room (laughs) dancing with these women. And yeah, so Uh, it's a curious social dynamic all around. I'm intrigued by this scene. it's, It's interesting, but it does eventually come to an end when the wife uses her dog behind the scenes fact that dog actually belonged to Kathy Najimi so it's her dog chasing her off yeah it's kind of nice Ralph the dog chases them off and he's just like a little little guy he's like Toto from the Wizard of Oz whatever those kind of dogs are yes he's sort of terrier uh yeah they walk out and they're kind of confused like why would the master act that way and Winifred is like now figuring things out that wasn't the master and these are not like goblins and monsters around us grabs a kid tears off his mask they're all children all Hallows Eve has turned into some night where children dress in strange outfits and run amok I remember this moment was in every single trailer and TV spot for this movie back in the day where she says amok and Sarah like hears it and just goes amok 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 and Winnie just gut punches her like shut up and like she keels over that is burned into my brain because that was in every commercial for this movie back in the 90s it's burned into my brain just because it's so joyously great (laughs) and Sarah Jessica Parker sells that gut punch in a big way just keels over her mouth is like whoa she's just such a happy little like pure id airhead and i love her <laughs> it's it's a good thing that's, and then uh, we cut to a scene that's like what kind of adult <laughs> promise it's like all the adults are in this town hall looking thing and i think you have more of uh, salem landmark notes yeah, about this little town hall. salem spotting so this is in fact the salem town hall or the old town hall it is also an Essex Street, so it seems like most of the shots here just went up and down Essex Street. <laughs> it is at 161 Essex Street. It is a Federalist building used as the town hall from its construction in 1816 until 1837. It's no longer the town hall. It now is a museum on the first floor and then has a performance hall space on the second, actually. So that's where the party is being held in the movie. There is actually a masquerade ball that's very similar to the one that takes place in Hocus Pocus, which is a bunch of young adults through adults dressing up in a variety of really stunning to really cheap costumes that just get super drunk in what looks like some sort of like prom space to a lot of music. But that's generally not actually held in the town hall. It's usually held in a hotel that's nearby so yeah you can envision this and know that this happens to a certain extent in salem on halloween maybe not the exact same costumes but we have the parents there dad is dadulized doing the dracula thing the kid runs up to see her mother who is dressed as madonna when madonna was doing like the crazy cone breast thing that she was all about i watched this movie on disney plus so like this is how i broke into my disney plus you know membership (laughs) One fun thing about Disney Plus is I have a trivia track going, and the trivia track will point out continuity errors every now and then. There's a shot-reverse shot thing going on here where you can clearly see the actor playing the mom, her hand. Looking at her, she has a wedding ring on, and then whenever we're looking at Danny, 
the wedding ring just vanishes. So nice. the goof I really like that the trivia track pointed out is that the idea that these kids left their school on Halloween in 1993 doesn't work because in 1993, Halloween fell on Sunday. Nah. Like, eh, whatever, whatever. I like I like the little stuff like that. And it pointed out goofs I never would have noticed. And I wouldn't have thought that a Disney trivia track would be about that. But hey, go figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just owning it, right? I mean, like, continuity errors, they're going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because these are movies made by actual human beings, and, you know, it's all good. fuck up. Not a bad thing at all. Although the father, he's wearing a Dracula costume uh-huh. in terms of, like, his cape and his fangs, white face paint and whatnot. But then he's also wearing these great set of, like, mid-century pajamas, <laughs> like, <laughs> underneath the cloak. And I don't know what that's about, but I... <laughs> Love it. I love it so much. It's a good thing. During this whole bit where Danny is showing her mom Binks the cat and trying to explain things to her, this is where I began to get flashbacks to the asshole grandpa ghost from Troll 2. Mm -hmm. Because the asshole grandpa ghost would only ever talk to the one kid throughout the whole movie, even though it's established he can talk to whoever he wants. So Binks the cat never talks to anyone except for the kids. He could speak up at any moment and get people's attention and say, holy shit, a talking cat. Okay, yeah, some crazy supernatural things are happening. We should do something about this. But he never does. So what the hell, Binks? It is curious. Like, I don't know if it's supposed to be that he could only talk when somebody lit the black flame candle or when, like, the witches are around can only children understand him? Yeah. Can only virgins understand him? Maybe only virgins can understand Maybe him. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> I could see that. That might be it. This leads into the reason that you hire Bette Mittler for a role, and that's to get to a great musical number. Max interrupts the band that's playing and says, The sisters, they're here. They're right over there. And whoever's working the spotlight is like all for like this because a spotlight immediately goes to the sisters. At first, the crowd is like, Whoa, you look like real witches. Just because they all like recoil from the sisters until Winifred says, Oh, thank you for the introduction. And everyone's like, Oh, okay, this is a gag. And so the sisters go up and there's a bit where Winifred says, Hello there, Salem. My name's Winifred. What's yours? And apparently, that's a reference to a role that Bette Mittler also Gypsy, had. I think. Y- yes, uh, that she plays a character, Rose, and at one point says, Hello, everybody. My name's Rose. What's yours? So, like, oh, okay, a little, uh, little inside joke there. Very nice. And they reference, be- I guess. And she began to sing, I put a spell on you. And it's, it's awesome. I could ask so many questions here, like, how is she able to project her voice as well as she is? How is the band able to play along with her? Why do Sarah and Mary understand how microphones work all of a sudden? I'm not going to ask those questions, though, because this is just a fucking awesome scene. Because they are eternal and time is not linear and they have already lived in this time. Also, the band and this fabulous skeletal gentleman had just previously been singing this I Put a Spell on You song. So the band knows this song. It is set up a little bit. I'll give it that. So they just join in. Yeah. And they use this opportunity to put a spell on the entire crowd that will make them dance until they die. So they basically just turn this into a rave gone wrong, I I would say. Yeah. Yeah. The kids run out and they go hide behind a seafood place. And the the sisters come in, and then we get the biggest continuity error ever here. When Mary comes in and she says, I smell scrud. Scrud? Yeah, you know, it's a bottom dweller. You you know, you can cook it, put some breadcrumbs and margarine on it. Margarine? Bullshit! Margarine wasn't invented until the 1800s, and this woman is from 1693. How does she know what margarine is? How? 
First of all, that is not a continuity error. That is an anachronism. And second of all, <laughs> they are eternal and time is not linear. <laughs> they know all things. When I was watching this, I thought to myself, when was margarine invented? So this is the movie that taught me when margarine was invented. Why was margarine I invented? I looked that up on Wikipedia, by God. I learned something. I had to... Of, yeah, there's uh, there's your little deep dive of the day. I'm like trying to crunch population stats uh, I, and whatnot. <laughs> and you're looking at when margin was invented. So did you learn why it was invented? It was uh, I didn't I forget a little bit of the Wikipedia did you get article, that far? but it it does explain that it was invented because Napoleon the Third had put forth a challenge to the citizens of France to come up with an alternative to a cooking alternative to butter because apparently there was a a dairy problem happening in France at the time. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So Napoleon brought us margarine. The third. Napoleon the third. It's okay. Important. Napoleon the third. Not OG Napoleon. Napoleon the third. The third edition right. of Napoleon. I was going to say, because that'd be just too much, you know, because he's already, yeah. <laughs> conquers the lands and then conquers the non-dairy spread market. Yeah. Um, All right. This, I don't know if you call this a plot hole. Uh, so the sisters head off. Allison bumps an oven. Looks at the oven and says, hey, I've got an idea. Cut to a high school. And I, I don't really understand how the sisters knew to go to the high school or what. Maybe there was a cut chasing here, but we're just at a high school now. And the sisters are running around. Yeah, it seems like Mary's superpower is that she has the super smeller. Yeah. Right. And so she can smell and identify individual scents. And it seems like they are hot on the trail of these kids. So since she smelled them specifically, maybe she's following their scent and like just tracking it. Uh, yeah. To the high school. I think you could get that in. Maybe that was established like in some shot. Maybe they just never filmed this, but it feels like you need some sort of like shot of them like running around the town and they smell something in like they're over there, that direction, and that that direction is a high school, but they just walk up to a high school in the next shot, so. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like, I'm not pushing on too hard, but, you know. So this high school that they're walking up to, Jacob Bailey High School. Jacob Bailey High School, you say? Yes, Jacob Bailey High School, which is actually, in reality, the Phillips Elementary School. Oh. At 50 South Washington Square. So this one is not on Essex Street. But this school opened in 1883, Mm -hmm. and it closed permanently in 1992. (gasps) So this building was free and available while they were filming. Although most of the interior shots, once again, on sound stages, but they're going to get the exterior shots here and Mm -hmm. put that Jacob Bailey High School sign up on the exterior of the building. This building is now actually apartment buildings in Salem, so it was repurposed into an apartment building. But yeah, that building's still there, and people now live in it. Right on. Well... The witches arrive. Uh, there's a deleted sequence where apparently they, Winifred falls into a swimming pool, and the sisters laugh, and hijinks ensue. I don't know, whatever. Uh, they walk around, and they are lured into a kiln by a tape. It's apparently it's a French lesson tape, so they hear, I have a book. J'ai un livre. And they head into... Where is the library? Where is the library? Where is the bibliothèque? <laughs> They go inside, and this is where we get a little graphic, because they're now inside the kiln. The kids close the kiln, and I had to look it up. Kilns will operate between 1,800 to 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit. So, yeah, hot enough to burn someone, which makes you question, why does this school have a kiln big enough to fit three people in? You know. Yeah, because skin will burn at 160 degrees Fahrenheit. You know what's fun? I didn't look that up. I just happened to know that off the top of my head. (laughs) 
I just happen to know um, the uh, temperature at which human skin burns. We'll ignore why. We'll just move past this that. This is the most unshocked my face has ever been. Mm-hmm. So the witches burn and the kids run out to celebrate having just burned three people alive. Like, yeah, we did it. Awesome. Yeah, they're super stoked about this, like, spree murder <laughs> thing that they're perpetrating here. Green smoke coming out of the smokestacks of the school. Like, yeah, all right. We burned them alive. Great. And so they're running around and fun fact. The shots they're getting are like now out in California where they're filming these things. And they're standing in front of a house that will be the house in American Beauty. Starring Thora Birch. Interesting. Yeah, not only, fun, yeah. not only that, we're going to see a fountain, and it's the fountain from the opening credits of Friends, like, <laughs> which was starting up right around this time. So this fountain was getting some use in 1993. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't have really been an iconic fountain yet in 1993. Yeah, that's true. Like, after, you probably wouldn't do that now like because everyone knows what that fountain is. Yeah, but, it's the Friends fountain. Yeah. But yeah, at the time, it's like, oh, good, we have this fountain. We can use it. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to use that. Banks, the cat, and Max, they have a little bit of a conversation where Banks is just sad about his sister, and Max says, wow, you really miss your sister, don't you? Yeah, Max, he does miss his sister that he saw die in front of him. Jesus, no wonder you're a virgin. You can't read nonverbal cues to save your life. Jeez. I mean, he has been around grieving for 300 years, <laughs> so like he might have had time to move past it. Uh, I don't know. Yes. Uh, Max and Danny take Allison and Binks back to their awesome lighthouse house. The adults are still at the perma rave, the dance until they die. Because uh, they've been bespelled. Yeah. There's a jump cut here I absolutely love where they've settled down. Uh, Danny has explained that to Binks, like, yeah, you'll be a house cat now. And I guess I'll take care of you for my entire life, as will my children and their grandchildren and so on. So it's painting a really weird existential picture for Binks now. Like, <laughs> Binks is now just going to be an immortal house cat that they're going to have to explain to somebody at some point. But So basically Salem from Sabrina. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And it's all like, like getting quiet and they're like starting to relax. And then jump cut to the witches screaming as the smoke goes back into the chimney. So it's like, uh, you'll be a house cat with my family forever. They go back down into the kiln when Fred walks out. Hello, I want my book. Bonjour, je vous mon livre. Yeah, so she, she learns some French oh. from those tapes. Not a wasted experience. That's... She's a quick study. Yes. <laughs> they're pissed off and they're ready to like really get some kids. And we meet our bullies again from the beginning of the movie. And they are like wondering, like, man, what are we supposed to do now? Like, what, what do they want to do, London? What do these bullies need to get up to, you think? Okay, so the first pitch is like maybe they should <laughs> slurk around and peer into the windows to watch babes change. And this seems like a really great idea until they realize like, Nah, man, it's like three in the morning. They're all already changed. And then they get sad about that. Aww, you know, yeah. But all the babes probably have undressed by 3 a.m. And so then they're out of ideas. <laughs> but it is a very cool way to timestamp yeah. your movie to yeah. let us know that it's 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. It, it was kind of a strangely like natural way to work that time in there. So I did appreciate that. Although then we're going to like quick cut more or less to the house. Like there's going to be a scene in between, which we can talk about in a second. But like we're going to go back to the house where Vanessa and Max are 
waking up and we're going to timestamp it at 5 a.m. Yeah. So two hours are going to pass very quickly within the span of 30 seconds of this movie. Within those 30 seconds, the bullies are going to not have to come up with any ideas on what to do because the Sanderson sisters are going to find them. And these are three chicks who have not yet undressed by 3 a.m. But <laughs> they're still a little scared. Yeah. And these dudes are like, oh, man, why is it always the ugly chicks that are, are out <laughs> After three, because like, we really wanted to see some babes. But, Chicks? And you do not call these women ugly, no. right? Like, you, you just don't do just it. Just not cool, bro. Not One, cool. One, because it's not true. And two, <laughs> yeah, because they will put you in a cage, which they do. Yeah. Uh, and this is yeah where the kids wake up. Allison looks at clock and is like, oh, my God, it's 5 a.m. Fun fact, uh, I looked it up. Sunrise on November 1st, 1993. Was it 6.17 a.m.? So... They need to get on this. But Allison decides, like, well, the witches are dead. Maybe we can use the book to help out Binks. And they open the book, and the book lights up and starts to glow. But you can hear Allison say, hmm, nothing weird happening yet. It's cool. This book is clearly glowing. And yeah. she's like, yeah, this is all fine. Nothing weird's happening. The witches see it. Winifred is, like, almost resigned to death because she can't remember the recipe to make the potion to help them live forever. So she decides, like, Mary, take me to the window. I wish to say goodbye. Oh, my God. It's so wonderfully dramatic. The entire line is, this is the end. I feel it. We are doomed. <laughs> I feel the icy breath of death upon my uh, neck. Oh, God. Mary, yeah. take me to the window. I wish to say goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye, cruel world. Uh, Mary's like, yes, yes, okay, okay. Yeah, it's, it's cool. I get it, yeah. They see the beacon from afar, and they're like, ha, that's where the book is. We must fly. And I, this is one of my favorite gags in the movie where she says, we must fly. And Mary's like, fly on what? Because they lost their brooms earlier while they were in town. They open up a closet and see, like, a modern broom and a mop. So Winifred flies on just a new broom. Sarah flies on a mop. And then Mary brings out a vacuum. It's like, well, okay, broom hose. She says that a few times throughout the movie, which I absolutely love uh, Kathy Najimi's delivery on that. Broom ho! We hear the vacuum turn on when she takes off. Yeah. They head towards the house. Binks jumps in the book. He's like, what the fuck did I tell you guys? Don't read the book. No good comes from the book. They head downstairs to get some salt, you know, because Allison, she's going to feel a bit more safe with salt. And Max starts to lay the moves on her, you know, uh, because yeah, this is the time, you know, that's like one of the things that was like rewatching this. I don't think I really picked up when I watched this as a kid. Like, how much of a virgin this dude clearly is. Like, I knew what a virgin was, and I sure, knew that this yeah. kid was one. But, like, watching this now, I'm like, oh, shit, you are, like, painfully, obviously playing this very virginal dude that just occasionally has these, like, very confident lines, but then in other times it's just this hot, jittering mess mm -hmm. of an individual around women. It was actually kind of a fun Allison performance. Allison says something like, uh, yes, Saul, this would be good against witches, or maybe warding off old boyfriends. What about new boyfriends? <laughs> and they go into kiss, and I'm like, 
Okay, Max, fun. Yeah, she's been traumatized for the evening and might be emotionally vulnerable. I guess this is now, it's now or never. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's your time to move in, uh, right? Like, get them while they're down. Uh, before that can happen, uh, as happens a lot in this movie, Max is cock-blocked in some way or another, again, by commotion happening upstairs. They run upstairs to find the book gone. The witches now have Danny in their possession. You know, she lightning bolts uh, Max across his drums and Allison has the salt and begins to throw salt around. This is a moment I mentioned earlier where we had the biggest editing no-no ever, and that's a repeated shot. Because we have a shot of Allison throwing salt around her in a ring, cut to the sisters, cut back to Allison still throwing salt around, but it's the exact same shot as before. And that's... And you can only do that if you're Tommy was so. Yeah. It's like the only time. Exactly. You can repeat like shots from a love scene, but do not repeat a shot of a or girl. Or Edward, th- actually, Edward has that past too. Again, yes, it, it does happen, and that, fine, but fine. the folklore of salts here. Yes, the folklore of salts. Salt has a long-standing history in folklore, often used in purification rituals. Uh, it, we can find it actually in Egyptian folklore, back to caravans burning salt over hot coals to ensure that evil spirits wouldn't get in the way of the travelers. We have it in Germany and Scotland, where there's actually this idea that if it's used in butter and like churned in butter, it will keep the witches from souring butter or harming the cow from which the butter is derived. So another kind of like purification sort of thing. And then in Irish folklore, there's often this like recitation of prayers that go along with it to cure people who might have been quote unquote fairy struck. And we can also find this in Eastern Europe, actually, Mm -hmm. too. Um, Bavaria and Ukraine especially have these really great old folklore tales and traditions where you can use salt or sprinkling salt on someone to see if they are bewitched in any capacity since it's a purifier right if you sprinkle it on them and they have a reaction sort of like holy water in the exorcist but a an older form of that this purified salt salt can also generally be used to detect the presence of witches and this goes back even to the middle ages there's this belief during the mass witch hysteria that witches couldn't eat anything salted so one way to tell if a Mm -hmm. person was a witch was to try to feed them very very salty food i'm not sure if it's a legend or actual historical evidence but there are at least legends that one of the ways in which people were tortured during some of the witch trials was to be fed large quantities of salt or salty food and then deprived water and That was to purify and torture the witch, but like newsflash, like bodies themselves don't like to eat a lot of salt without drinking water. Dick so, move. you know, yeah. confirmation bias there. And then there's this whole like counting grain stuff. I've heard this in relation to vampires before, but never about witches. Yeah. So in terms of why you might like kind of just shove it around you in a circle. So one is, yeah, that purification thing to keep them out. But there's also this cool little thing in folklore about counting grains. This is, yes, most heavily associated with the vampire in Eastern European folklore because vampires, they're OCD, you see. (laughs) And so if they come to a place that has these little millets of grain or rice laid out, then they will be compelled to count them before they can like pass, right? So hopefully that'll distract you a long enough time until the sun can rise and thus chase these evil spirits away. There are versions of like night hags and witches and Strogoni and things like that that kind of 
straddle the line between vampire and witch. So we do kind of get a little bit of crossover. But yes, vampires are OCD counters, which is also where you get the Sesame Street character, the Count, and why he's a vampire that counts things. <laughs> I love to count. I am Super the Count. Super important. But yeah, so like, there's a whole bunch of reasons right now that Vanessa, knowing her folklore, might just be shaking the salt all over her. But these witches, one of them is going to remark like, oh, clever girl. On the flip side, is also going to be like, we don't really care that much, though, because we got what we need. Like, we don't need you. So mm-hmm. we're, we're going to bounce. Yeah. And puppet fly out this window. <laughs> they do. It's a good time. And this is when Winifred says, Sarah, lure the children to us. And Sarah begins to sing the song that we heard a little bit of at the beginning of the movie when she, like, lured Emily to the house. And it's, I don't, I don't have the exact words. Come, little children, I'll take thee away. Yes. And... Apparently, for a long time, people thought this was something from an Edgar Allan Poe poem, and the composers were asked about that. They're like, no, that's we wrote that on our own, but it's badass to be confused for Edgar Allan Poe because we love him. Neo. Yeah, I don't know where people think Edgar Allan Poe wrote poems about children, Yeah, but <laughs> fine. That wasn't really his thing, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Kind of strange. So they they start luring all of these kids, all 7,600 children in Salem, I guess, are pouring out of their doors. Some of them look like grown men. Yeah, they're in their little, like, robes and their slippers and stuff. But, yeah, there's a lot of kids, Mm -hmm. more so than there would have been in the 1600s. But they don't seem to notice or care that there's just, like, you know, 7,000 more people. They're just ready to eat. Yes. And Sarah gets back to the witch house. The children are on their way. The witches are brewing things. They've got the potion ready to go. And Danny, Danny Dunn did it because Danny calls Winnie ugly. You don't call Winifred ugly. You don't do it. This is true. Yeah. Max tricks them by saying the sun's rising soon because it's daylight savings time. And oddly, daylight savings time does fall this time of year. In 1993, daylight savings time actually ended on October 31st. I wonder, like, when they started filming in October of 1992, did they look forward on the calendar and say, like, we could use this? Or did it just, was it just a happy coincidence? I don't know. It probably is a happy coincidence because I went through the years, like, really quick earlier today to see, like, when does Daylight Savings Time normally end and, like, the clock, you know, winds back. And it's, like, always, like, November 1st, November 3rd, like, October 3rd. It's it's always, like, bouncing around. It just happened to fall on the 31st that year. Uh, Like, all the years that I've been alive and suffering daylight saving time <laughs> things, I still could not even tell you exactly like what month both like springing forward and backwards <laughs> happens. Uh, yeah. I never remember. Oh boy, yeah. Shit just happens. It's... I don't know. Time changes. Time shifts around me. It's fun. So we see lights like coming on from outside. The witches think that it's the sun. It's that magenta light. Like magenta light. They do an awesome over the top death cry. Max takes his shoes back from the bully that stole them at the beginning of the film to spill the potion so they get the hell out of there. The witches wake up when Fred's like, he tricked us again. I'm always right. It's my curse. That and you too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they like, for the second time now, third time actually, have just like committed to the premise of death super quickly. Yeah. It's like, it's the death rain. And it's like, no, then we're dying. Like, you're in a kiln. No, we're dying. And it's like, there's a light upon you. No, we're dying. But, like, they aren't physically going through any embodied process of dying. So they just, like, commit to the premise and crumple uh. pretty quickly. So they're some dramatic witches. Yes. And I appreciate that. But, yeah, Max totally just left these bullies in cages to die. Um, yeah. 
He did not give a fuck. He was like, like, hey, Hollywood, come on, man. We're sorry about earlier. And he's just like, fuck you. I'll take my shoes back. See ya. Peace. Runs off. Yeah, it's. I don't know if it's like a fitting punishment for the crime, because yeah, these guys are dicks, but I don't know if that means you need to leave them to starve to death in like bird cages. <laughs> but that's fine. Max does Max. Yeah, the witches regroup and they see that the cauldron has been poured over. The potion is on the floor now, but there's enough left for one child. And that's really all they need. They just need to give this to one child like they did at the beginning of the movie and they'd be good to go. And Sarah points out, like, look, there's a whole bunch of children we can, uh, you know, use this on. We can just use it on these kids we have in the cage. But Winifred kind of spells her own doom here because she says, no, no, no. I want to get that child that called me ugly. And so we have to go get them to give the potion to Danny, and we're going to suck her soul out. They could suck any soul out and survive the day. But Winifred is just like, no, 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 no. The bitch called me ugly. She got yeah. to die. Vanity and vengeance be thy downfall. There you go. So we get like a crazy chase scene of the truck along the road, and the witches are following them. Like it's the high speed, like flying chase. And Winifred comes up along the window and says something like, show me your driver's license or like you're resisting arrest. Like, again, I don't know how the hell Winifred knows what those things are. Because they are eternal and time okay, is not God. linear. Uh, okay. <laughs> just just paint that excuse of everything you want to. Fine. Go I'm for going it. to. Yes. <laughs> they get back to the cemetery and run inside, run into Billy. His mouth is sewn Stitches. shut, cuts it open. Real moths come out of Doug Jones's mouth for this. They had yeah. a, a cavity like bag they stuffed into his mouth that had moths in it. And he had to actually let them come out of his mouth. Again, Doug Jones, he's just a badass. He's a champion. So we've got Sarah Jessica Parker eating spiders. We have Doug Jones just mouth mothing yeah. <laughs> these things. And then also kind of a dark undercurrent, like, his mouth was stitched together by Winifred because he was her lover. And then he was fucking Sarah on the side and she found out about it. So this is like a woman score. And mm. so like vengeance is in Winifred's blood, basically vanity and vengeance. I, yeah. But that's kind of a dark little thing to add in here <laughs> that like, she'd like stitched this dude's mouth shut and pushed him into a grave in the 1600s. I think the death on his gravestone's a couple months prior to theirs. Oh, okay. So well, there you this, go. Yeah, it's happened. She murdered him. Well, he now takes this opportunity to tell her off, like, trollop, tart, yeah, you, you stink, or whatever, and uh, so now he's a good guy. And apparently there was this, like, deleted sequence from earlier in the film where Billy begins to kind of turn into a nice zombie at the Halloween, like, adult prom, where he begins dancing with other people and he's in a conga line. And I think that's something wisely cut because I, I just don't think that would work very well. I, I know that Doug Jones could pull it off, but we didn't need that uh, scene. Yeah. So that's wisely removed from the movie. And so he decides, oh, he's going to help out the kids. They get a hold of Danny, take her up, but the cat comes up, knocks the potion out of Winifred's hand. Max catches it, drinks himself. So now Winifred has to put Danny down, get him. However, the sun is booking, and the sun is about ready, is coming up really fast. Dawn is approaching. Winifred tries to suck Max off. Yeah. Winifred tries to suck Max's soul. Uh, phrasing. I did that wrong. Did you, though? Yes. They both fall to the ground. <laughs> and it's weird because Winifred falls onto the cemetery ground, and nothing seems to happen to her at first. She seems okay, which was strange. 
She grabs Max, begins to pick him up, but her feet are now smoking, and she's slowly turning into stone. But she looks at the sun, so it's not really clear if it's the sun that's doing this to her or if it's the fact that she's standing on hollowed, quote-unquote, hollowed ground. I'm not really too sure there. <laughs> but Sarah explodes, Mary explodes, Winifred, now a stone, explodes. Yeah, do witches turn into stone terribly often? Is that a thing? No, they don't <laughs> usually. So there are a couple of instances in folklore where you will find witches that have been allegedly petrified and turned into stone just because petrification is a big thing in folklore in general. But there's a much richer tradition of petrification and the sun when it comes to trolls, actually. So especially in Nordic folklore has a lot of tales about trolls or ogres that when the sun rises if they're not back in their caves will turn to stone and a lot of rock formations that are claimed to be trolls and giants that didn't quite make it back before the sun and then of course tolkien is going to use this idea in the hobbit Mm -hmm. and whatnot but it doesn't originate with tolkien it originates from nordic folklore so yeah i always kind of assumed that it was the sun that had turned her into stone just because there's this tradition with trolls but the others don't turn to stone when the sun comes up. They disappear. So mm. it seems like it's maybe a combination of the fact that she touched the ground and then the sun arose mm-hmm. that made her both petrify and then... This is a very delayed effect because, like I said, when she lands and gets up, nothing really seems to happen to her and it takes a little bit for the effect to kick in. So, I don't know. I'm wondering if that's because at the time she was, like, sucking... Max's soul into her body and thus like she was becoming immortal and but she she hadn't absorbed all of the children of Salem yet so I don't know I mean like the science doesn't work out <laughs> like, it's it's fine okay, so you're willing to go with like they are eternal time is cyclical but now you're like the science doesn't work out here that's what your breaking point this is yes <laughs> <laughs> well I just like <sighs> I don't agree with her turning to stone and or them poofing out of existence to begin with. Because as I mentioned, like, that's my least favorite part of the movie is that these witches do not prevail and eat all of the children of Salem. Mm -hmm. So I'm not willing to suspend disbelief or allow any of the things that might take them out of this movie. (sighs) Well, either way, they're gone now. And so you think the day is saved, but no, the cat dies. And actually, if you look closely, he the cat is dying on his sister's grave. It's like, like, oh, because symbolism is sad. But everybody, turns out, is okay. Like, they look at the cat like, oh, no, Binks is dead. And then we hear a voice, hello, everyone, I'm over here. And now it's Ghost Thackeray is uh, is with Thackeray Binks is with us. The witches are dead. The curse is free. Uh, the, the curse is gone. My soul is free now. And so they're like, oh, okay, great, cool, dude. Yeah, he's been freed. So I think that we haven't mentioned is that this actor... Sean Murray, who's playing the human Thackeray Banks, is actually going to be dubbed yeah. over <laughs> by Jason Marston, who is the voice of like the cat, because he had a more old world sounding accent that they thought was more time period appropriate. So they got him to do the cat Thackeray. And so then they're like, well, these voices obviously have to match. Right. Yeah. But it's a nice ADR loop here because it doesn't necessarily sound like the voice you'd expect to come out of this face, but at the same time, the lip sync is actually pretty yeah. well done. I wouldn't have known that he was dubbed unless I think someone had told me. It's a decent ADR job. Yeah. Then we have this moment where Thackeray becomes a ghost again, this ghost boy in this 
mouth-throwing white ripped tunic. And I know there are a lot of people who had those kind of like momentary childhood sexual awakenings to human Thackeray ghost binks. Because right. this is a thing, that flowing thing. Then they have this thanks bro moment between the virgins where like Thackeray and Max look at each other and they exchange this moment of deep understanding of brotherly love for their sisters and virginity or something. I don't know. It's this, it's this prolonged moment. Keep the faith, Max. Stay a virgin. It's the only way. Then he's still going to throw shade at this virgin anyway. Well, yeah. right before he goes, he leans down and kisses Danny on the cheek and says, I'll always be with you. Like, what? Well, because he's a ghost now, and he can creepily haunt this child. That's strange. It's like, I'm going to haunt you and just, I guess, stand quietly in the corner and watch over you at all times like you do your brother from the closet. It's just like a cyclical cache of creepiness. So the Emily ghost now is arrived, and she says, Thackeray, Thackeray, and he walks off into the dawn, uh, the morning sun with his, his sister, and she says, what took thou so long, Thackeray? I had to wait 300 years for a virgin to light a candle. Goddamn like, virgins. And you're like, well, you're like, welcome, bitch. Yeah, asshole. <laughs> Gotta taunt me again because I'm a virgin even though I saved your soul? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, fuck my life, right? God. Yes. Well, we get some brief moments as the ending credits began to play of the adults are now leaving the prom because, or the adult prom, because the curse is gone, so they, they don't have to dance until they die anymore. I'm sure they had, like, another day in them if, if they needed to. And we find out the bullies are still in the cage. They're singing, row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row your boat. Like another troll to <laughs> overlap. The greatest American folk song, row, row, row your boat. And, yeah, they're probably going to die in those cages because no one knows where they are or that they're there. And no one visits that house. So, yeah, they're probably going to die uh, of starvation very slowly in those cages. Yeah. And we pan over and we see the evil book. And that eye is still open and looking around. That book is still awake and ready for something. The yeah. end. Or is it? Or is it? So you're saying there's a chance. You're saying that, yeah, there's a chance. So, fun fact. If you go to IMDb and you search Hocus Pocus right now, you get four different search queries or answers, what have you. Uh, you get this movie. You get a 1984 Hong Kong fantasy comedy horror film that's also called Hocus Pocus, just coincidentally. And then there are two in-production titles listed. Hocus Pocus TV movie. And then Hocus Pocus 2. The Hocus Pocus TV movie says that it's going to be a remake of Hocus Pocus with an all-new cast. Hocus Pocus 2 says that it's a sequel with the returning cast. So it's very unclear what is actually happening sequel-wise. The Wikipedia page for Hocus Pocus says that a sequel's been in development off and on since at least the early 2000s. So... It's mm -hmm. not terribly clear what's going on there. All the cast members have said, like, oh, yeah, we, we had a great time on this movie. We'd totally be down for a return. I did listen to a, an interview with Kathy Najimi, who played Mary, and she was very ex excited about the movie or had a lot of fun working on the original movie. But she said something very interesting where she stated, here's the thing. Disney is all about making merchandise with my face on it that I do not get any money on. So until I agree to another movie, I have a lot of paperwork I need to make sure we have in line. 
So I'm not going to say anything just yet until we get some details worked out. <laughs> like, uh, appropriately so. The fact that Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker, she's doing fine. And Kathy Jimmy is a working actor, too. But the fact that they're not getting a little, like, extra pay from everything that Disney is making off of Hocus Pocus is, that's a little shitty. Yeah. Especially since Disney has they, enough They money. have the cash. Come on. So, London, what do you think a Hocus Pocus sequel would be? Yes. So I did see some different kind of pitches for Hocus Pocus sequel. There also is apparently a novel that is a sequel to Hocus Pocus that is available commercially out (laughs) there that looks at, if I can remember correctly, I think it, I want to say Max and Vanessa are married in the novel and they have a daughter. And then a lot of the action revolves around the daughter. Hmm. So I have more, like, elements that I would like to see in a sequel. I would like to see Tor Birch's character, Danny, is now a practicing Wiccan <laughs> who has seen, like, the ways of magic and, that like, they are legitimate. And so maybe she goes towards that. Yeah, she's a magical practitioner. She's always liked witches. And then Max is probably in some sort of, like, douchebag denial phase still about his role in this night maybe has become a popular author that capitalizes off of fictitious renderings of witches in his fiction but still skeptically denies their existence publicly but then yeah danny's gonna have to come and convince him in some way that some shit is going down again because she's you know like recognizing some stuff but the really important thing for me though is like the witches themselves who we would cast and it's incredibly important to me that one of those people is Kesha. <laughs> I was thinking that, like, maybe at some point, if you have the returning cast members, maybe they, like, succeed in, like, getting their youth potion, but it takes them, like, a lot further back than they meant to. And we get younger versions of them. And, like, yeah, one of them is maybe played by Kesha. Uh, one of them is, I don't know, Zendaya. Uh, another is Miley Cyrus or something, like, pop, modern pop yeah, stars. Yeah, so... One of them is Kesha. Okay, definitely. One of them is Cardi B. Okay. <laughs> Which one turns into Cardi B? No, I mean, like, these are their, their own thing. Oh, they're like, new I wishes. wouldn't want to just, okay. like, have them, you know, like, completely put the affect of the old... Because I think it would be maybe a mistake to have somebody try to emulate, right, like, these performances that are already, like, kind of packaged and, yeah. and perfect in their own way. I also don't necessarily think that we need these specific personalities again, like... You're saying that we don't need the Sanderson sisters again? Well, I'm saying if you're going to recast them, then I don't necessarily think that you should have other actors, like, try to emulate the performance okay. of the original uh, Yeah, assuming sisters. that, like, yeah, it's a new thing, yeah. You couldn't replicate that. So, yeah, like, you either bring the Sanderson sisters mm. back or, like, you cast three new women, right, that are three different women. Maybe a different form of the Sanderson sisters. Maybe three women who have come across these two dudes that are in cages and a book and they start their own little coven and they invoke, you know, like the spirit. I don't know, but I want those dudes back too. Right on. What's your sequel? Uh, I operate on the assumption that we have the main cast back. Not only that, that we can do like awesome youthification, de-aging effects on them and they just look like they did at the end of the first movie. I could probably flesh this out a little bit more, but in broad strokes, I, I like the idea that They're brought back in modern day on Halloween. The witch house has been turned back into some sort of tourist stop. There's a tour guide showing people around and he has a really mean boss 
And after the shop closes down, the tour guide hears some weird ethereal singing and some portraits of the sisters come to life. And they're screaming because, like, to them, the end of the last movie just happened. So they thought they were dying, but they, they come back to life wondering what the hell is going on. The book is not opening its eye to Winifred. She's freaking out about that. They hear some singing that takes them into town, have to go investigate things there. Then we meet Max and Allison, who now own that lighthouse home. Uh, we meet Danny, who I kind of like in parallel with you, like maybe Danny owns like this new age bookshop and she's a practicing Wiccan. Maybe she deals in tarot as well, uh, which the sisters are all fascinated by. And then they we meet the, the mean boss who owned the witch house as a tour shop and turns out that the mean boss is the one that brought the witches back. Not only is she the one that brought the witches back, she's actually their mother. Because we get a mention of a mother a few times in the first movie. I'm like, okay, let's meet the mom. Why not? Yeah, I do want to meet the mom. I have seen, like, sequel pitches about, like, that it's, like, the mom that comes and, like, brings them back. Yeah. Although, counterpoint... I'd almost prefer Vanessa and Max, since they're just like these high school, you know, like kids or whatever. They didn't end up together, but maybe like they both live in town yeah. and maybe Vanessa is divorced. Maybe Max is still a virgin. I... Oh, 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 boy. Yeah. And uh, the mother is there. She's disappointed in her children. I think my, my backstory for the mom was like. She ate the souls of all the kids on the children's crusade of like way back in the day. That's how badass this woman is. That's why she's lived forever, because she has filled the quota on child souls in a big, bad way. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a concert in Salem, and the sisters are going to have to sing at the concert and use that to lure the souls away. But along the way, the sisters end up kind of liking Salem and, you know, modern life or something like that. that, that things that draw them in. That's kind of hard to do. Uh, without being too cheesy, but I'm sure there's a way to do that if you refine the story a little bit. And at the end, they put on an awesome concert, but instead of using the spell that's going to suck souls out of everyone in the crowd, they cast some sort of spell that redirects their energy at their mother and banishes her to another realm. And now we the story like ends with the witches immortal because they took their mother's power and they also decide to readjust to modern life. Maybe they help out at Danny's store. Winifred just like moves back into the house, becomes like bitter, but also misses her sisters. So they get together every now and then for concerts. It's like more of a lighthearted approach to the whole thing, because I'm just thinking like, what if Disney did this, what direction would they take with it? And it more likely would be the sisters become the good guys by the end of the movie because everyone likes the witches more than we like the other Mm -hmm. characters, obviously. So the characters that we like survive and begin to enjoy themselves and acclimate to Salem life. Unlike a conventional way, obviously, like they're helping out Danny at her awesome New Age bookstore, maybe when he's a curmudgeon as well, uh, who still hates children but doesn't feel a need to eat them. I don't know. There's ways of doing that, but that was like my own like personal mm-hmm. take on it. Like, it, I'm just thinking like, okay, if we want the cast to return, and we want to think of something that Disney would actually do, what would that look like? So, yeah, I mean that would be much more pleasing to the hocus pocus mm-hmm. crowd, to be sure. As would something to do with the fact that like when the witches come back to Salem, modern Salem embraces its witchy yeah, roots exactly. so completely. Now there's so many occult shops, there's so many witch things that there could be something fun with them wandering around and like running into all of these practicing Wiccans and being like, wow, this is so much now more open. And there could be, yeah, some sort of feminist angle to take with that against patriarchal designs. But I basically just want to watch Kesha and Cardi B like lure in and just like gore slaughter children. Sure, sure. We all have our kicks. 
That's kind of a different movie, but I still want it. All right. So, you know. Top five. Yes, top five. All right. Who is? You go, you go first. I always go first. You go first this time. Oh, wow. All right. So, honorable mention mm-hmm. to the father in this film. <laughs> Charles Rocket. His father yeah. was delightful <laughs> and Every line he delivered was just so great, and he just had this presence. Like we didn't talk about him enough, but like he was, he was fucking delightful. And then number five comes in for me at at Max, actually okay. the guy who plays our virgin. I did not appreciate him at the time, as I mentioned when I was a kid watching this movie. But looking back on it now, it's like he really is embodying a certain type of 15-year-old virginal dude, and he's really selling it. So he actually does a really nice job in this movie, like, creating this character. Right on. I guess I'll give Max as my honorable mention. I didn't have one originally, but I'll give Max as an honorable mention. Uh, He doesn't deserve deserve to be a number because fuck this kid. I don't care. Uh, My number five is Doug Jones. I love everything about what he's doing in this movie, and this was the start of a great career for him. So it's just really fun to see it, uh, him at work. Uh, he gets to talk. He normally doesn't talk in the movies that he does because he's some sort of creature. He played a character in the two Hellboy movies, and in the first one, he was dubbed by David High Pierce. And the second one, to David High Pierce's credit, he's like, no, Doug Jones is doing everything you need. You don't need me to dub him. Just use Doug's voice. So he let Doug do it. So he got to talk in that one. But he normally, you don't hear his voice. And here you actually get a little dialogue from him while he's still in that outfit. So the dude can mime, he can pantomime, and he can still talk while he's in that thing. So just an awesome, awesome suit actor. So I got to give it to him. Fair enough. You're number four. My number four. We're going to give it to Kenny Ortega. All right. Okay. Kenny Ortega has a certain kind of like fun, whimsical sensibility. I do like that he managed to go from choreography in the theater to randomly directing these movies. I do think that you can tell that this is still a very early directorial attempt by someone who wasn't traditionally a director, sure. but he does bring a certain levity and enjoyability to this film that does have sustaining power, and so that's... That's pretty cool. Also, I appreciate that he, kind of like Joel Schumacher, he's always been an openly gay director and is a very big anti-bullying platform kind of dude, which is also, I think, why the bullies in this, the two bullies are a little bit more endearing than (laughs) usual because he just, he hates bullying so much. And most of the bullies from around this time period often use incredibly uncomfortable language. Usually they go to the homophobic place, and we don't oh, yeah. get that with these bullies. That's true, and I think yeah. that really has a lot to do with Kenny Ortega. So I'm glad that he brought his little sensibility yeah, in. I didn't catch that about him in my research. So that good on him. Good to know. Um, my number four is going to go to James Horner, who is the composer for this film. The score for this film is there's nothing distinctive about it, I think. Like, if someone said, hum the thing from Hocus Pocus, you most likely wouldn't really know what to do or what part counts as the actual theme. But it is the a kind of theme that, like, fits the film very well. It might kind of fall under the realm of, like, you know, some people say the best film score is the one that you don't hear. It's not that we don't hear this film score, obviously, but it's not trying to bring attention to itself. 
in the way that something like, say, the Star Wars theme would bring to itself, or most of like John Williams' stuff. Now, that's bad, obviously, but it, this is working like just in cohesion with the film a lot better than I think something like John Williams would write. Fair enough. My number, what am I up to? Three? Three, yeah. Three. Goes to Terry Frizzi's Rick Lazzarini and just really all of the people that are making the flight effects on this happen. Mm-hmm. The puppetry is really great, especially for the time. The The rigging was really great. There's, yeah, there's something fun about the flight in this movie. <laughs> and I just, I know how much work that that actually takes and how much liability that actually puts on a film production to have your principal actors be in the rigs, which these three principal actors were for a lot of the rig work. So yeah, it took some guts to do. I would okay. Yeah. my number three, I'm going to have to give to collectively trademark, trademark New England and Salem, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. Trademark New England. A lot of people, when they think of New England, they think of this movie and like the changing leaves and like the crisp nature of autumn. And this movie gets that across so well all wrapped around this supernatural horror comedy, not really horror comedy, but just supernatural comedy about witches. And it still has time to make the area look as gorgeous as it is. And I guess it's also out to the location scouts or the producers who said, like, let's film it in Salem. Like, let's really go to Salem and film this thing. Having the care to do that and make Salem look so cool, that just, that deserves a big spot for me. So, yeah, good job. Yeah. Well, my... My number two goes to the location scouts and trademark New England. (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, the setting of this is very much a part. They picked out a lot of iconic locations in Salem, Massachusetts. And also, I forgot to mention that when they were building their interior sets in California, Disney, with their goddamn Disney budget, even actually uprooted... New England trees and brought them out to the set (laughs) in California so that the foliage would match. And that's that's legit. Damn, Disney. That's always something I notice sometimes, especially recently in movies, because I've been living in so many different places and noticing the foliage of the tree lines and stuff is... Because, like, that happened in Lovecraft Country recently where I'm, like, watching it and I'm like, you guys are trying to make this look like New England, but those trees are clearly from georgia (laughs) and then i like looked up their filming locations and they do indeed like shoot in georgia i was like nailed it Ah. so like yeah yeah they imported those trees so um, the set designers on this thing they went all out well uh working in reverse i guess my number which that was two for you right yeah see this is why we gotta keep consistent i guess we this is confusing (laughs) us mind-boggling um number two uh, I have to give it, give it up to your number three, which is just everyone who did the special effects on this movie and made them so fun from the, you know, the, the cool flame effect and the black flame candle to all those candles like come to life when the, when the witches return to the awesome lightning effects for Winifred's Sith powers um, to the great flying effects they're done to make that look so seamless. Like good flying effects are really hard to come by and hard to do and... Um, and also like, you know, the people who made the Billy suits, you know, Doug Jones obviously acted in it, but that's a great costume. Coincidentally, apparently inspired by Ichabod Crane. What? Yeah. yeah I read that somewhere that like they were inspired by the look of Ichabod Crane from the, I guess the old cartoon Curious. and the, how he's described in the book a little bit, but yeah, that's my number two is like just everyone who made the fantasy come to life uh, through their effects work. 
Well, obviously our number one is the sisters. Oh, okay, the sisters. Yeah. yeah. It's not like, you know, number one is Sarah, number two is not whatever. It's a surprise twist no, ending. This, all three of them are their own entity, and they are, like I said, the very top. They are the reason that this film has the staying power that it does for so many people and inspired so many costumes, so many reworking and cosplays over the decades. It is the work of Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy. So... That being said, Sarah Jessica Parker, far and away my favorite, just in terms she, of her vapid performance. That's really hard to do. Uh, she yeah, does and so well. I mean, she definitely holds a special place in my 12-year-old heart. Uh, 12-year-old me was really into her character back in the day. And yeah, 12-year-old me was really into her character, this, too. Well, like, like mine's. Uh, Unfortunately, we have that in common. There, yeah. there it is. I mean... Yeah, uh, she uh, definitely was a standout to teenagers all across America when this movie came out. Uh, so it, just, it was mostly just her attitude, too. Like, her just entire... Everything, there's not a bad thing about her in this liberated movie. confidence yeah. was so great. So good. So very, very good. But at the end of the day, they are witches. And witches are a dangerous breed. What is it that we need to look to to get away from dangerous witches at times, London? Uh, well, dangerous witches is where I want to be all the time. Oh. But unfortunately, yes, it's time for us to return, I suppose, to the world of muggles. As J.K. Rowling would say. Safe word out. Hey, hey, I never had sex before. I got a bad little bitch in the vents for sure. I know that I ain't never taken off those shorts. So if you think we gonna smash and baby close that door. Hey, I never had sex before. I got a bad little bitch in the vents for sure. I know that I ain't never taken off those shorts. So if you think we gonna smash and baby close that door. It's been getting pretty hard to keep my dick in my pants. Told profits and the money, man, I need that advance. I do. I'm trying to fuck this cutie, but I got no chance and i've been getting horny might have to fuck one of my fans sex is really gross but i want to have it i'm in the bathroom jerking off that's my only habit i'm wrapping all this cash around me like it was a jacket but i can't get no pussy man i can't even tap it I ain't never had sex before Except for profit, now we poppin' getting checks for sure I've been pushing this fucking run to switch a Lexus Sport I'm saying me and the virgins, we up next for sure Man, for real, the pussy pink like it's curvy But homie, I would never know Cause I ain't doing the dirty And even when these girls in their 30s and chicks getting flirty My verses on virgins, my boys are dogs like Vicks on their jersey I'm saying I never lose, so you know we never fucking Cake all around me, call it Baker's Dozen Haven't fucked a girl, I might need some instruction Bitch, call me MC God, I don't like introductions Hey, being a virgin of disease You could call me a simp The way I'm begging and like please Always getting rejected You like a brother to me Feel like the only time I fuck Is if I'm paying a fee Like when am I getting some pussy Like am I being too pushy Me and the virgins on the come up By the way that it's looking bitch I've been getting money You ain't been doing shit It's kind of funny I'm a virgin But your girl wanting this Hey, I never had sex before I got a bad little bitch In the best for I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!